Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I'm your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. For listeners who are new to the show, at the top of every month, I'll choose a filmmaker or genre of which I am woefully oblivious and discuss the significance and impact of said filmmaker with a guest who will then recommend me three titles most relevant to the topic. Um, and then I watch those titles and report back on. I've already botched my intro. This is wonderful. Uh, this month I'm exploring some films from Terrence Malick and joining me to discuss, he's a, he's a, a friend of mine. I, I finally admitted that public that I, that we're friends. Thank you. Uh, this is big. Yeah. Uh, Andrew DeSelm. Andrew, thank you for joining me on I Do Movies Badly. Thank you. <laughs> this is already going swimmingly for both I of us. I know. This is know. Uh, the first peek behind the curtain. This is the first live recording. I'm currently in Andrew's apartment. Um, we are sitting uh, in close proximity to his his uh, DVD and Blu-ray shelf. Many titles of which I have thought about stealing more than once. Look at those criterions. <laughs> it's magical. No, you have so many. Um, are there any that are relevant to this conversation on your shelf? Lots. Uh, there won't be any more after this episode. Hooray! <laughs> anyway, but we are recording live. This is my first live recording in, I think, since Halloween of 2016. Uh, whenever Gavin was on to talk about the, the, the Universal Classic Monster. Oh, movies. yeah, the uh, double features. Yeah, that was. I think that was the last time anyone joined me. So this is exciting. Pretty lonely. Pretty desperate for uh, <laughs> the social attention. It gets, it gets lonely in my apartment by myself recording this podcast. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Andrew is here. Andrew's going to talk about Terrence Malick. Um, and I guess, Andrew, before we talk about Terrence Malick, we should talk about Andrew DeSelm. We should. I want to talk about you. And what, what makes you so... I mean, one thing I try and emphasize in this podcast is democratization of, of film criticism. Andrew is not a film critic. I am not a film critic. Um, but Andrew loves film. I do. Um, what what started that for you? Like, let's let's step back to, to young Andrew's life and sort of what was I guess let's go back to the first thing of like a movie or something that was sort of like oh my god this is my thing the, movies are my thing now. Uh, that's a really great question. Uh, so when I was a teenager, I was looking for work, kind of like my first like real real job oh, yeah. uh, in the big city of Fort Wayne, Indiana, <laughs> and. Uh, I went and applied two different places. I applied at Blockbuster Video, and I applied at The Buckle, which that is a clothing store that sold Lucky Jeans, which were super rad at the time. Oh, yeah, okay. And like 95 bucks. <laughs> so I thought both interviews went well. The Buckle did not call me back, but Blockbuster did. And therefore, <laughs> I uh, worked at Blockbuster for two or three years, Aww. latter part of high school and early part of college. And at the time, uh, Blockbuster which no longer exists as Rest in all, peace. Yeah. Yeah, so most famous for being joked about now. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, they would let you rent five movies a week for free if you work there, which is a pretty sweet deal. Are you serious? And amazing how five movies a week was not enough at a certain <laughs> point. You would just be like, five movies, this is not enough. I need to... So I'd actually end up paying for a few movies a week, despite wow. the fact that I got so many for free. Oh, man. Um, so that was sort of how I self-educated. Um so you didn't go to film school, or you did eventually? Well, you're yeah. Talking so, about... so I went to my undergrad was in English education and literature, Woo. and then I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, 
and I had the luxury of being like, let's go to grad school. <laughs> and I went to grad school uh, for film theory. And oh. um, yeah, so I have a, an MA in film theory. And I wrote my graduate thesis on Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> and that was my sort of bread and butter for a while. So for a few years there, I would like give lectures at different, like, different schools most notably notre dame i gave a lecture about you know uh gus van sant's well of course psycho and as one does as one as one does and the one like consistent thing of you give lectures on gus van sant's psycho no matter where you're at the first question is why yeah that that was going to be my next question yeah or, what was the thesis why of him that? and yeah. why are you doing this and this like the look of disappointment on everyone's face when i enter the room yep because usually I enter the room like sort of as a prologue to what they're about to watch. Mm-hmm. And there's just this sort of look of like, why are you making us watch this? I was at a classroom one time and I could just see the students were all so angry that mm-hmm. I'd been brought in to force them to watch this stupid movie. Once again, what was the thesis of this, of, of Gus, of your, your paper or your, your dissertation or whatever? I, I don't know these fancy grad school terms that you have. I, yeah. only, I only have my undergrad. This makes me feel so much smarter, so I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, so I actually, it's funny, despite the fact that this was like my bread and butter for a while, I, it's been a decade since I did this, I think. Okay. Yeah, around a decade, so I'm a little bit hazy. But I think my memory was that it's sort of a really useful sort of like heuristic device to sort of study and unpack like the nature of great art. So you have uh, Hitchcock's original Psycho, which I think pretty much everybody would declare as one of the sort of great classic American films, if not films full stop. Um, And then you sort of have a shot for shot remake that tries to capture it uh, as Almost as close as possible. There's a few exceptions, which I won't Masturbation! Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of like, you could sort of use it as almost like uh, like the ship of Theseus. Are you familiar with this like, myth where that you have like sort of a philosophical like story of like how Theseus has the ship, and they replace a couple boards, oh, and yeah, they replace okay. a couple more, mm-hmm. and then they replace the mast, and that's, there's this sort of question. At what of, point like, does it still be is at it what point, still the ship? Yeah. Right, at what point is it no longer you know the original ship? And of course we have that with like most famously with like the human body, right? Where we shed all of our cells or whatever, you know, okay. once every yeah. eight years or whatever it is. I'm not a scientist, so I probably should not be speaking <laughs> about that. <clears throat> but anyway, so there's this really kind of cool thing of like, if you just sort of swap out these sort of different elements, you know, take out Janet Lee and put in Anne Heche and take out, uh, why am I blanking on Norman Bates's name right now? Uh, are you talking about in the remake? Yeah, the you... original, the original. Oh, this is uh, really embarrassing. Uh, oh my God. Uh, Anthony, per- no, yeah, uh, Anthony, Anthony Perkins. Perkins. Yeah, I was yes. about to say Elvis Perkins, which who is, that's his son who is a musician. Is that right? Yeah. Who, uh, he has a song. It's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. It's called while you were sleeping. Well, Anthony Perkins is a super underrated actor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can talk about that. I can talk about the original Psycho, actually probably at greater length than I can talk about Gus Van Sant's Psycho, despite mm. the fact that I used to give lectures on it. Um, but yeah, like Anthony Perkins was like this incredible actor and like had this great range and he was the, sort of the new up and coming, like both like proper actor, but also sort of like Tiger Beat magazine cover material. Is that a reference you know? I know, yes. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I, 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 I do. Because uh, yeah, like magazines for like little girls I, and like, you know, like Backstreet Boys being on the cover, this is also not the other reference. <laughs> and so did Anthony Perkins. Not at the same time, not in the same era. Uh, but yeah, I had all this promise. And then he's in Psycho, which of course is this crazy, you know, role that he does all this amazing stuff with. And then, um, but it sort of derails his career because 
everybody sees him as uh, Norman Bates, and he never quite gets over it. And then he agrees to do some sequels, and just, and you know, so he didn't, you know, his sort of career didn't pan out so well. Is Although he did become a, a, a writer, like a screenwriter, among other things. Oh. He, he uh, did a screenplay for this really wonderful uh, '70s kind of murder mystery called what is it? Uh, the Last of Sheila. If you ever oh. have a chance to watch that, if you like, kind of like who done it sort of. Anyway, anyway, so, so it, was, it, was, it was sort of his uh, his peeping tom with like Michael Powell. Yes, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, all that to say, same same year I believe they came out as well. Both right. uh, Pe- yeah, peeping yeah. tom and Psycho. It was yeah. a great year for derailing people's careers. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course Hitchcock, uh, despite the fact that man, we're getting way derailed by this. I hope this is. A, I hope yeah. rabbit trails are. Uh, uh, okay, yep. this podcast, but um, you know, everybody thinks of a lot of people when they think of Hitchcock, they, they think of Psycho, and they yep. forget the fact that that was actually sort of the exception in his career. Most of his stuff was like these sort of pieces of cheesecake adventure romances, and then he just does this like straight up like horror film, you know, madhouse thing, mm-hmm. and and uh, and then frankly, his career after that is sort of underwhelming. I mean, there's little high points here and there, and mm-hmm. people will point to the birds, and other people will point to the fact that if you actually watch the birds, it's actually kind of not that great like it, it was sort of successful at the time still but... haven't seen it oh uh no, sorry i haven't seen it since i was a little kid okay. but it's sort of famously like if you sort of bring it up people bring it up as a defense and then mm. people immediately sort of attack that defense and say like watch the birds again and you'll see that it's like show was financially successful at the time but not so much anymore especially from what i understand if you're a big fan of movies that involve psychological and physical abuse towards the lead actress yeah, and if you want to talk about that, I mean, Hitchcock is a very, yeah, very troubling, probably nearing Harvey Weinstein level sort of creep. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's uh, you know troubling things about a lot of things about that age of Hollywood and this yeah. current age of Hollywood. And I would definitely say if the amount of media attention that we currently have was uh, focused on that at the time, then uh, yeah. Hitchcock would probably also have been uh, having <laughs> to retreat into shameful solitude or whatever. So, um, and, and yeah, but yeah, anyway, we've 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 derailed it uh so uh but so you this was your you chose you willingly chose to have a, a dissertation on on gus van zandt's like which by the way if you andrew and listeners are, are into podcasts then uh gus van zandt was somewhat recently on wtf with mark maron nice and it, when he ever brings filmmakers on he kind of has like a like a retrospective on their career and gus van zandt from what it seems like does not regret and actually kind of enjoys the fact that he made a shot for shot remake of no Psycho. so i and this is sort of one of my defenses as well as much you know I, I was talking to my wife about this because she's not necessarily a huge art film person and the last few days has been 24 7 terrence malick of me trying to like cram <laughs> before this because i haven't watched um any of his movies in a couple of years at least um and i was uh sort of trying to like give a sense because i said like uh, spoilers like Tree of Life and Thin Red Line are maybe my two favorite movies full stop wow. but I dreaded watching them especially back to back which we can talk about that later but <laughs> but I dreaded kind of watching them and she's like how can you dread watching your favorite movies and I said like they're not really entertaining necessarily and she was like well why would you like it then and I said well movies serve different purposes so you go to a museum you don't expect to be like on the edge of your seat with thrills you don't expect to be like <laughs> blown away with tension but you appreciate and enjoy it in a different way than you know watching you know game of thrones or something sure and that's so there's just sort of these different values so there's these sort of different ways in which you can appreciate movies um and terrence malick uh obviously presents a different kind of filmmaking that you sort of have to approach 
in a different way. And all that to say, to bring it back to the complete rabbit trail, um, <laughs> Gus Van Sant's Psycho, while not successful as a thrilling movie, while not successful as a great movie, while not successful as almost anything else, it is, <laughs> it remains this sort of unique sort of a thought experiment that's been rendered into sort of a literal form and funded by Universal Pictures. Yeah. That, it's yeah. this bizarre sort of like springboard opportunity for like reflecting on the nature of art, on the nature of, of representation, of the nature of sort of what makes something great. Because in theory, I think a lot of people, I mean, it's very easy for us to be like, well, that's not the same thing. The ship of Theseus uh, analogy is nonsense. Like it's not the same. You're not taking the same thing and replacing it. You're just completely remaking it. So it's, how is that, you know, yeah. whatever. But, uh, you know, I would, fair. That's, that's a, <laughs> Uh, that's a fair point, but yet it still remains a sort of interesting thing that was like, you can t- kind of look at this thing, and I think a lot of people are take this re- reductionist attitude towards movies, where it's like, I don't like the story, I don't like the story, it's not about the story. And it's like, well, if, that's all, if, all, if it's all about the story, then why is Gus Van Sant's Psycho not work? Now, maybe you could say, well, even 1960s Psycho would not have worked. Fair enough, I doubt that that's the well, complete story of it. Well, but know? I mean, Psycho was also based on a novel too as well right. so, yeah, so there's an inherent story there but. yeah Robert Block's novel which is the structure is dramatically different in some respects so it's yeah. but but it's interesting so, mm. so uh, I could talk about Psycho forever and we probably should stop <laughs> before yeah. I get off on rabbit trails uh, about that but. yeah no and that's it, well one last dig at it uh, what, it, what what Psycho the remake is a great example of hubris anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway um, yeah but, yeah but so yeah. I, I, I and, and um. So, but you, you did this and like you've you've taught a bit as well. And yeah. So, uh, so I taught at Indiana University South Bend for five years. What? Yeah, I, I like that you said what? Like we're we're both graduates of Indiana. I, University yeah, South Bend. I, I've I literally never been in Indiana before my entire life. So yeah, it's uh, got wonderful people and a great university called Indiana University South Bend. And then there's this other little tiny university called Notre Dame that's nearby. Never that, heard of it. Yeah, and it's, Cer- certainly did not watch them lose to Clemson in their Cotton Bowl. You know, since I don't care about sports, I'm totally oh, unfazed. Right. I'm yeah, totally we were, unfazed. We were, we were texting about that, and you, you, it was like I started texting you in Greek when we were. Oh, that's right. You actually brought up Notre Dame, and I was like, "What? Are you, I don't know what you're even talking yeah. about." And it was actually Notre Dame. It, it was. Is, I, I imagine on your end, it was sort of like peanuts. It was like womp 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 Notre Dame. Yeah, womp, exactly. Womp, yeah. Which is ironic because I was literally back uh, visiting family for the holidays <laughs> within a couple miles of Notre Dame, and still had no sense of what was going on. Okay, so as as someone who has taught film, then I have two questions for you. Yeah. What did you love teaching? the most and what was i guess the most frustrating things you would always hear from students about certain things i wish you had prepped me with the questions before uh whatever i don't Uh, don't even prep things for myself on this podcast (laughs) um what did i oh sorry what was the first question it was what did you love teaching the most (laughs) like and whether it was like a certain uh film or a certain approach to it you know yeah so i loved i actually am the exception to i think a lot of or I, should, I, I was an exception to a lot of professors. I actually loved teaching the intro film class. Oh, really? Um, which I sort of shaped around uh, going chrono- uh, chronologically through American film, okay. um, which obviously, you know, is sure. it's kind of problematic because the world cinema is something they don't have a lot of... Um, hey, even a, if, lot of a lot of people yeah. don't have a lot of access, especially the kind of students that I was teaching who aren't, you know, they're Indiana people and they often the area around South Bend, Indiana, where Indiana University South Bend is, mm-hmm. is not necessarily a super rich or cultured place. So this is sort of a lot of people's, a lot of students' first exposure to mm. film. So I wanted to do something that was sort of accessible, but at the same time expanding their sort of horizons. So it was like wonderful showing, like, I always showed like uh, Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. Uh, mm. first. And have you, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen that? I have not. Okay, so it's uh, amazing. It's like 50-minute silent comedy, so it's really short, really tight. And okay. it's like the tightest silent comedy 
I've ever seen where it just it's just thing after thing after thing of like brilliance and like fun and so like the first day of class students are just sort of like whoa this have, is have you seen Chaplin's The Kid I don't like it so take that this is a good back po- this you. is a good point to note that Andrew and I disagree on many things about cinema yes including uh, for instance let's say I don't know the Suspiria remake oh boy which Andrew bring loved it. and bring I, it. I and I hated um but we're not going to get into that oh so tempting right now uh yeah so i I love charlie chaplin the kid i find unremarkable um well it finds you unremarkable it probably does (laughs) (laughs) and and it's not incorrect about that (laughs) um yes but uh i mean i i would defy you to watch uh shock jr and not be like this is so incredibly delightful anyway so i showed that and i love showing that i loved we actually were just talking about this before we started recording Mm -hmm. i showed douglas sirk's written on the wind and you know surprisingly these kids these like 18 year old kids who you know have most of whom have seen very few older films. Uh, and, you know, you show them Written on the Wind, which is a melodrama that's like, you know, just feels like straight soap opera with <laughs> overacting and technicolor and silliness. And, and it's like a delight. Like, it's mostly because it's an awesome movie, period. Yeah. Um, and maybe the, one of the best examples of sort of melodrama that exists. Yeah. But, you know, like seeing students actually like watch this and be like really caught up in it. Um, so that was my favorite thing, is sort of introducing these students who hmm. didn't necessarily have a ton of exposure, especially to older films, to these newer films, and seeing them actually feel like they can kind of approach film mm-hmm. and feel like they can approach things um, in a sophisticated way. The final few years, I was really foolishly risky, and one of the final things I do, I showed them Nicholas uh, Winding Refn's uh, Only God Forgives, oh my God. which is a really risky move, because we tried to avoid... Uh, we tried to avoid show anything too shocking i know there's like classes out there that show like um a serbian film and that sort of thing that was not our approach at the indiana university of south bend and let me just go on the record saying that is not that's not our approach indiana university of south bend um but i did show that and i obviously prefaced it endlessly with there's gonna be some stuff in here that if you need to walk out if you need to avert your eyes obviously mm-hmm. but uh by that was at the end of the semester and by the end uh students wrote uh like a four or five page paper sort of analyzing it and i think if you had taken them at the beginning of the semester and said, you know, like, try to analyze this, uh, there, there's just no way. Like, there's, it's just a complete mystery. But by the end, sort of giving them the tools and seeing that actually build up, there's, like, this kind of wonderful moment of, like, most of the students wrote kind of interesting papers trying to decipher Only God Forgives, which I think most popular film critics yeah, uh, don't know how to decipher, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I... I... Most of people just don't have the uh, desire to decipher. Right? I, I was about to say that I uh, I'm a Nicholas Winding Refn fan, and I even I haven't seen that one. But I, I think I'm just a fan of Drive. I lo- I, and that is exactly what I would yeah. say. I, I think you summarized Nicholas Winding Refn perfectly. Where I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm a big fan of his, and then I realized the only movie I actually like is Drive. Yeah, because like, I, I didn't care at, for Neon. Demon. I was gonna say you look at Neon Demon, yeah. you look at uh, uh, what was his first a Pusher, right? He did Pusher. Yeah. And although that was like huge, highly acclaimed, it was like man, it's really I thought it was really boring. Um, um, what was that other thing he did? He did the one with uh, Michael Fassbender, the one that uh, he also did Valhalla Rising with uh, what's his name? With that's Hannibal. the one I was thinking. That's not. I believe that's uh, what's Hannibal the TV show. What's that guy? Mads Mikkelsen. Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. I believe. I think that was Mads. Mikkelsen. He was, but wasn't. This does, you know, none of this matters. Getting off track. Getting off track. <laughs> yeah. I gave a really long answer to your simple question. Uh, the thing I think that what was the second it, part like of the, uh, the thing that you find you found. I don't want to say the most annoying about students, but like. Maybe it was even like common misconceptions or things that students kind of had this idea. Like, for instance, I'll, I'll give you this thing. As someone who was never a teacher but took plenty of film courses, I remember taking a screenwriting workshop, and one of the things our professor did was sort of like, uh, we'd watch a movie and sort of like, what were some of your favorite moments of the script from that? And everything we named was like, 
that was the director. That's the direction. That, oh, and, and so that's it's, great. It's, so it's stuff like yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing. Like you just kind of assume at a certain point. Like, and, and I think everyone has this at some point. Like this is just a, a very specific, long-winded example of like everyone just kind of assumes a director shows up and starts like making something. Yeah. It's like, well, no, that's not really how it right. goes. Right, but oh, isn't that fascinating though? It shows how much you know you sort of teach a tour theory like just just the one sentence sort of logline of what a tour theory is, and, yeah. and every student's like, that's nonsense. You know, like I don't, I don't really, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. And then. What uh, your teacher did, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but what a wonderful tool to show students like, this isn't the director, this isn't the director, this yeah. isn't the director. Well, because it was twofold. It was sort of like, um, <laughs> on the one hand, sort of showing like, this is, uh, I guess, sort of seeing how, sort of like, as an industry, they kind of overlook screenwriters, but then also sort of like, no, here's the, you know, this the the script and the direction are oftentimes like not two different things, but it's sort of like a script exists as one thing, a director brings something to it, but it's it's you know, uh, you can't have a great film. Like Kurosawa said it's like you can't have a a great film without first a great script, kind of a thing. Right, and then of course the other forgotten third of filmmaking is the editor, right? Uh, yep. And which is also interesting because I feel like you know we always I'm sure you and I are both very aware of uh, the troubling lack of female representation in filmmaking, but if you look historically. At editors, uh, a I believe historically that was a considered women's work. Uh, if we go back to really old Hollywood, but uh, if you look at a lot of the you know the great filmmakers and there's like these extraordinary editors, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you think of like um, uh, who the the Maisel's brothers documentary filmmakers yep. uh, is like the Maisel's brother and Charlotte Swearing. Mm-hmm. You look at uh, Quentin Tarantino's editor is what Sally Menke. Sally Menke, yeah. I mean Thelma Schoolmaker. And first, of course, I was gonna say, first, and, first and of course the, the most the most quintessential in my mind is. Uh, yeah, as Thelma Schoemaker, who was like 72 years old and editing The Departed, which is the most like young person action ride, you know, thriller that, you know, one of the, the for me, one of the great modern fun roller coaster ride movies out there. And it was made by like someone my grandma's age. It's madness. <laughs> uh, there, there, and there's, no, and I'm sorry, I have to, I, her name is not is not coming to my off the top of my head, so I'm looking at it on IMDb. The oh, of course, Dee Dee Allen, another one. Uh, Who's that? I'm... She oh, well, uh, one of her most famous things was Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. So that, that concluding shootout, if you've ever seen it, was yes, just like that's Dee Dee Allen, and like oh, the wow. reason it's so visceral and responsive is like that's her work basically. Oh, that's really amazing. Um, so uh, but yeah, no, it's, um, once again. Sorry, go on. Uh, no, I, that, that was all I was going to say. Uh, oh my gosh, oh. she also did uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Which is... <laughs> oh, that's also extraordinary. That, that was an example, by the way, when I was working at, even as a high schooler at Blockbuster, I'd heard that and it looked boring and I was like, I should probably watch this, kind of take my medicine. Mm-hmm. And I watched it and I was just like, this is amazing. This yeah. is so wonderful. And mm-hmm. some of those movies that just kind of stick out from that era, which I'm going to, it's going to be very important to our conversation today. Sure. Uh, that sort of new Hollywood era where you sort of hear about it and be like, ah, it's kind of old and crusty. And as a high school, I'm not really interested in the sort of academic or sort of historical approach. You're just sort of like, give me something entertaining. Yeah. And of course, you know, you rent Dog Day Afternoon. It's like, this is blowing my mind. You watch, you know, Godfather, or I should actually speak in the first person. I watched Godfather and I was blown away. <laughs> I watched The Conversation uh, mm. by Coppola. And I, yeah, I'm glad that's your reaction. Oof. Oh, let me tell you one of the most disappointing things. This is not the answer to your question, but one of them <laughs> is right. I showed the conversation once uh, to my students and they all hated it. Okay, they just should have all failed. All I was very irate. <laughs> like, I wanted to say, make comments, and I was just like, no, be a professional, be a professional. Uh, so I'll give you a short answer just so we can move on. But the short answer to, like, one of the most annoying things that students did, and this is kind of a silly answer, but I think it's also accurate, is anytime. Um, I don't mean to uh, step on any toes of actual film critics, sure. but anytime students uh, would write academic papers on films for my class, they would always, whenever they'd list an actor or a director, they would then immediately, in parentheses, 
lists of movies. Uh. So they'd be like, so they'd be like Nicholas uh, Winden Refn parentheses drive Valhalla Rising, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was just like this is uh, a very different mode of writing that you're doing here. And it was so funny because it was so hard for me to like because I could tell that they were like, oh, I know this, I've got this, I know how to write about film. And it's like what you do is when you list any person involved in production, you immediately. Uh, write their uh, IMDb credits in parentheses afterwards. Yeah, no, I've done that plenty of times before myself as someone who has uh, written his fair share of... And that's, and that, and that's obviously totally fine, especially in uh, uh, popular film criticism. Uh, it's just not done as much in academic film criticism. And especially if it's someone famous, right? You, mm-hmm. you sort of assume that there's a little bit of knowledge about the, yeah. the subject. Anyway. So, okay. Um, I, I guess uh, we could talk for hours about this, but... Um, I guess we should probably actually get to Malik at some point. So it, it, it's it's funny because I I garner from garner. That's right. That's, that's not all the word. No, I glean. I, I picked up based on this conversation and also conversations we've had after movies and this kind of stuff. We have a little bit different approach to how we respond to movies. Mine is sort of a. I I know for me I kind of whether consciously or subconsciously I kind of like what's the story, what's the script. Like that's kind of the level that I first kind of approach a film with. And so, if you approach a Malik movie like that, you're in trouble. You're shit out of luck, basically. You're really in trouble. So, what, I guess, so what is it like? What, do you remember the first Malik thing you saw, and what was it that you were like, oh my god? Yeah, what? so I can actually, I, I had this built in transition with my uh, nerdy ream of notes that I've got in front of me. Um, <laughs> People have brought books to these recordings before, wow, so you're Okay, fine. I've been outdone. I was really hoping I would really set myself apart as a true academic. No, uh, get in line, average person. Yeah, seriously, for real. But this is, yeah, anybody can be a filmmaker or like a, a critic. Yeah. Even me. Um, but, uh, I, if you're a fan of like the Criterion Collection, mm-hmm. I think everybody that becomes a fan, you become, everybody starts kind of picking up similar bizarre habits. And one of them I think that happens to a lot of us is, uh, the blind buy lottery where you're sort of like, Ooh, that's got a cool cover. I'm just going to buy it and see. <laughs> Whereas like never in any other circumstance where I'd be like at Target or whatever. And of course now it's, I'm showing kind of my age that I actually buy Blu-rays and DVDs now where nobody understands that. And everybody mocks me when they walk into my apartment and they see that I've got DVDs and Blu-rays. There's always a contemptuous laugh. Anyway. I'm slowing down a little bit, but I'll still like... I'm as well. Yeah. I'm as well. But but I yeah, I, now they sort of operate as trophies of like, these are like unique <laughs> movies that I'm not going to, like as much as I might enjoy, like... Rewatching the Avengers, like I know that's always going to be available for yeah. streaming, so I don't need to go out of my way. But you know, as far as kind of finding oddities or sort of unique films, okay. and sort of like anyway. Uh, so I blind bought uh, this film from I believe it was two thousand by David Gordon Green called George Washington. Oh yeah, that, that was and that was also my first exposure to, to David Gordon Green. Right, and yeah. well, it makes sense because it's his first feature length film. Uh, oh, so okay. I was reading, I was I was blown away. I, I have blind bought some things in the past, and it's you know usually sort of mixed results. Or I try to convince myself I liked it when I didn't. <laughs> um, but but George Washington, I was blown away by. I just had never seen anything like that. Where mm-hmm. it's just like. Let's focus on beauty. Let's not necessarily concern ourselves with the narrative. And obviously the danger, and we'll talk about this a lot, probably a lot more, is mm. that you know you lose your audience. But like, if you can make it so sensuous that you sort of forget, like, I don't care about narrative. And I felt like, especially at the time, having never seen anything like that, George Washington did that. Mm. So when I did a little more research online, people are making comments like, he just stole from Terrence Malick. He just stole from Terrence Malick. And I think even in like the essay by Armand White, uh, in the uh, George Washington notes, let's not get di- digressed with that. <laughs> uh, um he makes reference to the fact that it's borrowing heavily from Terrence Malick. And of course, his third film, so he did George Washington, All the Real Girls, which is also amazing. And then um, uh, Undertow uh, with Dermot Mulroney, not Dylan McDermott, 
Dermot Mulroney and Josh Lucas and Jamie Bell and, okay. and a young Kristen Stewart. Uh, it was actually produced by Terrence Malick. So oh. he sort of wore his inspirations on his sleeve uh, and then went so far as to actually have Terrence Malick be a producer. So all that to say, hmm. I read about that and then I was reminded of uh, hearing about Thin Red Line uh, at that point and I decided to check out the Thin Red Line mm-hmm. and uh, so my first Malick was the Thin Red Line okay. and it just it, it just blew me away. Which makes me now wonder what would it look like if Terrence Malick had directed the remake of Halloween? Or I guess the sequel. I oh, guess it's the I sequel. Love, I love this thought experiment. <laughs> I cannot tell you how much I love this thought experiment. And, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later, too. It delights too, so, me. Um, it delights me. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I'm trying to think of what my first exposure to Terrence Malick was. Because I've seen a decent amount of his catalog, but I think... I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I think my, my first exposure to Terrence Malick was a blind buy, similar to you, is... Right after I bought, or shortly after I bought a, a PlayStation 3, which it was, the draw was not just was it had games, but it had the Blu-ray player integrated into not it Not well. the HD DVD? Was that the no, box the, that had that? The, the, yes, it was, yeah. The HD DVD versus Blu-ray Wars, which wasn't so much a war as much as a, a, a slaughter. slaughtering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I, I bought that, and I think the first two movies I bought were The Dark Knight and Slumdog Millionaire. Okay. But then shortly after that, one of the first Criterions I bought was the Days of Heaven Criterion. Oh, I'd wow. never seen it before in my life, but I'm like, yeah. I've heard great things about right. it, and like, I got this big screen TV now and this Blu-ray player, and so that was my... And, and sure enough, it was one of those things I'm like, this is gorgeous, and I'm so bored. <laughs> uh, but it was also, I'd have to say now, 10 years ago that this happened, so... Yeah, and uh, spoiler alert, that will not be on my... Top three, which is why I, I felt inclined to bring it up. Yeah, and I mean, I think we there's no way that I can talk about Malik without talking about that at some point, uh, sure. shortly. But uh, I actually don't particularly. Days of Heaven might be one of my least. Well, it's absolutely one of my least favorite Malik, if not my least. Favorite. Uh, I definitely can't say least favorite, but we'll. Are, are, there'll be a little ordering later on because I want to make sure I talk about like. So there's sort of two different things about Malik. If can I jump into this? No, please go on. So I wanted to talk about. Uh, him sort of as a person, as the enigma, and then also his filmmaking. So we'll talk about the enigma first because that sort okay. of informs a lot of things. Well, and, and that's interesting too because it seems like he's one of those guys, or at least until recently, was sort of like a recluse, and you didn't, you that's couldn't right. find much about him. That's it was right. sort of like who could be more reclusive, him or Michael Cimino? No, yep, yep. <laughs> uh, usually he's compared to J.D. Salinger, actually. Oh, okay. So I mean, I think we all, if, if we've done any research on uh, Terrence Malick over the past like twenty years, remember there's always like this one photo that exists. Of him like in a cowboy hat. It's like his it's, IMDb photo. It's his photo. IMDb photo. Yeah, yeah. and it's been that same photo. I think they just now added a second IMDb photo. Uh, there um, there are exactly two photos. <laughs> of, or, or three photos of him on IMDb. Uh, one of which is that, but in black and white. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so yeah, he's, I mean, so he's really famous for avoiding the spotlight. He um, w- refuses to let his image uh, be attached to any marketing materials. He refuses all interviews. He actually doesn't go to the premiere of many of his films, if any of his films. Hmm. Uh, even more crazy uh, little tidbits like he wouldn't let producers keep a sample of his handwriting so any documents that he would give them with a, uh, with had his, which had his penmanship he would demand that they'd be returned to him with no copies made or or destroyed entirely uh, one of the producers that worked with him said he wouldn't be able to communicate with him directly he'd call a number Malik's brother would call him back and give him information they said one time they did meet up and then he, at the end of the meeting, he uh, said uh, he offered Malik a lift home, and Malik was very cryptic about where to drop him off, and eventually sort of settled on some random sort of cross street, <laughs> and uh, the producer dropped him off, and then sort of as he dro- uh, 
Malik just sort of stood there until he drove away, and as he was driving away, he kind of looked in his rearview mirror and saw Malik head off, like, obviously towards some other destination <laughs> that had nothing to do um, with that. So so that's sort of... Uh, and a lot of that uh, enigmatic uh, reputation is obviously all those things, uh, but then also there's this famously sort of mysterious blank period in between his filmmaking, which we'll talk about, I think, in a little bit. I'd rather not talk about right now, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, now, how much of this do you personally think is sort of like, this is just a weird guy versus like he's the 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 Asian um, magician from The Prestige where they're pointing to him like, no, he keeps up the act at all times until he, you know, gets behind closed doors. Like, So here's the, here's the sort of famous counterpoint to all these anecdotes. Mm-hmm. The famous counterpoint is actually, people say he's recluse, but that's absolutely wrong. And if you look this up, and the, the, there's a few articles available that seem to have primary sources. Mm-hmm. Um, the most lengthy of which I found was, a, which I got a lot of those anecdotes from, is from this Vanity Fair article that came out in 98 with Thin Red Line. But a lot of the counterpoints is he's not a recluse. He actually, if you go around like Austin, Texas... You can just find him. People hang out with him. He's out and about. He's just protective of sort of his, uh, I don't want to say professional image because that makes it sound like he's like trying to like protect some sort of like whatever. He's, he's, more, got, he's, a, more, he's got film canisters. Yeah, no, no, no. He's, he's more just uh, protective of his privacy. So right. in, the, in the same way that some people might be like, I don't, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on social media, I don't, which yeah. obviously he's not. Uh, <laughs> obviously. Uh, that's, that's him. And that it's not a matter of like, if you saw him, he has a... a uh, fake glasses and a nose with a mustache on it and races away mm. it's, he apparently is very friendly and will you know I've read some on some forum that is completely probably not believable at all that they after some sort of weird screening they actually saw him and they started talking to him and he was like really friendly and chatted with him they actually got a drink afterwards mm-hmm. so again if that's to be believed who knows but it seems to fall in line with what a lot of people say which is he's not a recluse at all he actually is out and about and doing stuff all the time you can huh. find him all the time it's just that he does not want his image out there he doesn't want his handwriting out there he just is very private with his life he keeps his private life private um but still goes out and you can see him shopping at whatever the texas equivalent of you know kroger's is i think so. it might just be kroger's actually that's probably true. <laughs> they have a monopoly now um what and for you i mean does the does the intrigue add something to you on like a viewing or is it not even something that you're even thinking of no okay uh i mean i think the one thing that's interesting is the gap Okay. Which again, I think we should maybe wait to talk about. Mm. But now, which wasn't one of his movies allegedly like edited based on notes from a class that he was teaching? Like they got, they kind of gave notes to him. I, I heard that anecdote. That's it might a really be. Good question. I, haven't, I actually haven't heard that anecdote, but I can tell you that like he is an educated dude. So he got a, his BA in philosophy from Harvard. He did graduate work at uh, Magdalen College, Oxford, as a Rhodes Scholar, oh, even though he did not finish. <laughs> uh, he taught philosophy at MIT. Oh. He then went to. Uh, got an MFA from the AFI Conservatory in 1969. His okay. classmate was David Lynch. Oh. So, uh, sort of swerving this a little bit, uh, he's part of uh, New Hollywood, right? So, I'm and sure that, you're very familiar with this, but I guess yeah. for your viewers, New Hollywood, if you want to fill them in. So. Yeah, well, no, yeah, in that because that was actually was going to be a, a, a future question of mine, was that thing of, like, we we can sometimes, because of the the... I don't want to say disconnect, but sort of the the distance between his tone and the tone of like a, a Scorsese or a Coppola or that kind of thing. Um, and I guess people could argue that there is no disconnect or there is no dissonance, that they're all somewhat similar. But yeah, it's sort of like we think of the new Hollywood wave as these young up-and-coming filmmakers drawn from the French New Wave or Italian New Realism and sort right. of like... And hyper-educated in film history. Yeah, well, like yeah. Fil- these film snobs who read Kyer do cinema and sort of like, I'm right. going to, to make a movie in the studio. It's like, fine, we're, we're, we got nothing going on. We're fucked, so you guys go ahead. And Malick was part of that bunch. I mean, Badlands was 1973, 
but he like you don't really see a lot of pictures of him hanging out with Spielberg and you know like and or what right. if, what are his thoughts on Jaws? <laughs> We're not really sure. It's just kind of like he's part of that group, but like you don't associate him with De Palma with Scorsese. With I agree, Coppola, but yeah. it's actually ironic. Uh, so I, I thought the same thing, and I was sort of originally sort of crafting my comments on sort of like introducing him and his the milieu in which he came out of. Yep. But he graduated alongside David uh, David Lynch. Yep. Uh, Jack Fisk, who is his production designer on everything, okay. uh, who's uh, excuse me, um, Malik's production designer, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. who is I believe married or at least life partners with Sissy Spacek. Oh, they sort of uh, he used Jack Fisk for everything. Jack Fisk uh, before working, I believe before Badlands, uh, did some stuff with David Lynch on Eraserhead, okay. famously, and famously Sissy Spacek also did weird like kind of behind the scenes stuff on Eraserhead. And then uh, they came back to Malik, and then they were used by Lynch again, and then came back to Malik. Uh, similarly, uh, Brian De Palma and him sort of traded back and forth uh, uh, people. So uh, obviously, Sissy Spacek went from uh, Badlands to Carrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, yeah, uh, Jack Fisk, her husband, also worked on De Palma and Carrie, and also Phantom of Paradise. And then went to Lynch. So there is actually a little bit of this sort of like, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of incestuous sort of training. <laughs> I, I, in my head too, I was trying to think like there has to yeah, be Yeah, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better quite word quite sort of that. But yeah, there's sort of incestuous training of like between him and De Palma and Lynch of these of these sort of like characters and sort of figures. So as much as I sort of like, on the one hand, seem as slightly outside of that, I, I think he was kind of involved. And actually his uh, Badlands premiered... Uh, alongside uh, Scorsese's Mean Streets. And I believe at that premiere is the New York... Uh, I have this written down somewhere. I think New York Film Festival or something like that. Um, I think it actually got slightly better praise at that particular festival than Mean Streets did. I think it actually overshadowed Mean Streets. Now, having said that, when it sort of went... Um, when it was sort of finally released, uh, again, our memories of Badlands that is well-received, that's not quite right. It got pockets of critical praise from some important people, but mm-hmm. also a lot of people just didn't get it. Um, and obviously Mean Streets I think was by popular and critical opinion at the time I believe was vastly sort of uh, moved past it and was sort of more notable at that time Um, but yeah it's sort of interesting keeping that in mind and I also think so this is uh, one of the questions I've thought about a lot while sort of again thinking about how to introduce him in his time period Mm. and, and the new Hollywood I think in some respects when I watch Badlands specifically uh, I feel like it feels a lot like a new Hollywood film. Uh, the one exception is, I think, are you familiar with like the the term like classical Hollywood style that like David Bordwell talks about? Where there's certain like rules of classical Hollywood and sort of like how it should be made, and it's what you might imagine. I, I'm I'm sure I've I've been exposed to it at some point, but I mean for my own edification, I guess the listeners, if you want to get more into it, certainly. Yeah, I mean it's like it's continuity editing, making sure characters have motivation. I mean it's basically anything that makes it so it's a very coherent, easy story. And frankly, uh, most contemporary blockbuster movies follow the classical Hollywood making style making sure you have coverage in your shots exactly that's actually yeah. coverage is actually one of those mm-hmm. uh, editing for clarity and narrative logic uh, and I would say that in New Hollywood I think one easy way in my mind at least of sort of defining what that style was is taking that like whatever that sort of like those seven principles whatever they are and just dropping out one of them I feel like that's <laughs> kind of the New Hollywood style it's okay. just like oh let's just drop out one of those and then it's like this very stylistic thing and suddenly we're sort of like uh you know, we're learning from Godard and we're sort of like doing our own little take on it, right? They yep. always sort of like take conventional genres and sort of like make it more personal or take conventional genres and make it lyrical, make take conventional genre and take it. Yeah. That sort of thing. And I think uh, Malik comes along with Badlands and sort of uh, drops out a few of those things at once, um, which is, I think, more than 
most uh, people from that time were doing. Are you how familiar? So I'm just going to say, like, Badlands is one of the three movies I'm going to recommend. And, uh, are you kind of familiar with that at all? Or uh, I have seen it. I am not familiar with it. Uh, that was back in the day when I had a, a Netflix disc subscription. That was one of those that I got. I still do. And I <laughs> and people make fun of me for that too. So you're the one. Yeah, when I walked down the street uh, of Brooklyn and tried to like to take it to the post office or whatever i always look very self-conscious of the fact that there's this very conspicuously red envelope that is obviously a netflix dvd and nothing yep. else and i'm worried that people are going to start like throwing cans out their window at me well it's it's actually kind of funny because relevant to this conversation is it was a netflix title which sort of made me realize i have to get rid of my netflix disc subscription because i got the new world and it sat on my coffee table for six months before I got around to watching it. And it was just sort of, it was like this constant like reminder of if I'm not in the mood to watch something, right. I like I, right. you know, and, and the, the cue is very much like it's of a place in time. It's like, oh yeah, yeah I remember adding this right. I, right. bubble by Steve Soderbergh right. on here, but then I'll get it. I'm like, I don't want <laughs> yes. That is the perfect example <laughs> yeah. of a movie that would sit on your counter forever and you're like, I've got to take my medicine and just watch yeah, it. Like I, I don't want like, it. I'm sure I'll be fine when mm. I start watching it, but I've got to take my medicine. And, and it was it was just this <laughs> constant reminder of not just is, is film viewing very much like based around mood, but then also a reminder of like, you are wasting money on this thing. Yes, yes. And you have to kind of... And that of... is my current life, by the way. I've had like... <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm trying to remember what it was. Yeah, something something in my... Uh... Do, do you remember the first movies you ever got on Netflix? Because I do. That's actually a great question. I've got it. It's actually the Keep Your History. So I think I actually have it all the way back. And it's kind of fun, but I don't remember what it was. First two movies I ever got on Netflix because I had the two-disc plan. Right. David Lynch's Eraserhead and Grumpy Old Men. Those are that's a nice double feature. I feel like that's a nice double feature. I feel like there should be like a, a game of like a sort of like a intellectual game of yeah. like pairing movies like that and then trying to find sort of thematic yeah. or visual or sort of like because one of those obscure filmic art devices films, yeah. o- overlaps of like what what brings these two together? Yeah, obscure art film that I like I wouldn't be able to find anywhere, and right. then also like. <laughs> Hollywood comedy that I'm like didn't really want to spend money on, right? Um, and Grumpy Old Men turned out to be completely delightful. Like it's an absolutely like wonderful. That's, that's film. my memory of it when it, I watched it. it I it's like, a lot nine. of fun, yeah. Um, and relevant to my interest, uh, the pairing of Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, uh, thanks to Billy Wilder, my favorite director of all time. Great um, choice. But anyway, uh, anyway, we are we're we constantly getting derailed here. No, so let me. Uh, so I'm gonna like present. Uh-oh. A sort of like theory of, of Malik, which is going to be overriding sort of or sort of like crossing over everything I say about Malik, okay. which is I'm going to make a claim that there's sort of three Malik periods. Okay. <laughs> so the first period is Badlands and Days of Heaven, which is the two movies he made before his 20 year break. Yep. I kind of consider that, and I hastily put together these titles. Oh if God, I was going to actually this one here, holy shit. If I was going to actually write <clears throat> an essay or do something with this, I would actually come up with better titles. But sort mm-hmm. of, I consider those first two movies as sort of introductory legend phase because he makes those two movies and disappears for 20 years and everybody's just like there's this great filmmaker he made these movies that are just like outstanding and unlike anything else mm. and they just disappeared and we don't know what goes on right so then he comes back and he does uh, he enters his next phase which I call the the quintessential phase okay. because this is where his style and uh, people will disagree with me whether or not Thin Red Line should be included in this I think it should especially if no other reason than just chronologically uh, but yeah he does Thin Red Line he does The New World he does Tree of Life mm. And that's sort of where his style is sort of at its peak. And then, and this is going to be the hardest part, and we are going to have to talk about this probably near the end of the episode, there's what I would call the late period, a.k.a. the decline. Yeah, and, and, and what seems to be his, quote, prolific period, because it's... Correct, his yeah. prolific period. And we'll t- I feel like we have to talk about that quite a bit near the end, mm. and I'll 
try to my best to sort of like unpack that. So I mean, so it goes. I, I need to say again, like Terrence Malick is one of my favorite directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tree of Life and Thin Red Line are maybe my two favorite films. Full stop. Um, but there's some stuff that we need to talk about about <laughs> Terrence Malick and his style. <clears throat> so uh, I feel like we probably should at this point talk about his style since this is yeah, that's fine. Um, and and <clears throat> I mean, obviously, <clears throat> maybe and you can disagree with this. We should start with the most obvious thing, which is his <clears throat> visuals. Right. I mean, we have, and I just looked him up, so I'm already going to forget his name, um, Nestor, the DP on, on Days of Heaven, who was, <clears throat> anecdotally, he was going blind as that as that film was shooting, um, but then he, he worked with Emmanuel Lubezki a whole bunch of times. Right. Um, I, I just saw this, re- like, there's three credited DPs on... Uh, yeah, that's right. One of, the, one of which is Tak Fujimoto. Right, that's correct. That <laughs> um, is correct. So, like, correct. Th- because, because they burned through them, because the the first one or two okay. were working, and they just said like, "This moron doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's shooting like an idiot. Uh-huh. He keeps on trying to do stupid stuff." And they just sort of abandoned it because they're like, "This is this is a moron." And they're meanwhile, this is like a first time filmmaker, yep. and one of his producers is literally getting money from his mom to produce this movie. And like that, actually, I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, I believe one of the DPs was actually friends with the producer and went back to New York and told his mom, who's like one of the main financiers, like, this Malik dude is a moron. You shouldn't give them any more money. <laughs> and basically like ratted him out to his mom and told him that, uh, told her that she shouldn't be financing it. And apparently she, she doubled down and oh wow, they made this movie. So, um, yeah. So let's talk about Badlands a little bit since this is the first... Uh, well, do, I mean, do, do you want to... Oh, oh, I want to talk about the style first. Okay, yeah, so let, because obviously, as Andrew has spoiled, yeah, Badlands is, is the first one we're going to talk about. So that we'll be spoiled. getting to that, but first let's start with a... Please, I have a, a very loose format I have to... I have yeah, to I get to. it, <laughs> I get it. And now I'm out of control, just like recklessly <laughs> yeah. excited about just He's, talking about Terrence Malick. And you can't hear it because of my sound editing, but uh, Andrew's breaking bottles everywhere. He's, he's yeah. There's no pants on. This is, this is crazy. How can I wear pants in such a time we're, as this? We're, we're in Brooklyn, there's just... Constant fires going. Oh, is that? Is it supposed to rain tonight? Those look like some ominous clouds. Anyway, I'm he's sorry. saying I'm getting off track. He's over there <laughs> sorry, like I, a I, dog I, seeing a squirrel. <laughs> anyway. um, yeah, so let me talk about style. So his style. What he what he's known for primarily is his style. And yeah. and if you were paying attention to my sort of three periods, he really doesn't get to the style that he's known for properly until that sort of second era, the mm-hmm. sort of second act, the quintess what I call the quintessential phase of like Thin Red Line or arguably the New World. Um, so uh, he's known for these sort of floaty, dreamy camera moves. Yep. Uh, and sort of gorgeous cinematography. He's known for insert shots of close-ups of nature. Yep. Um, as much as the films feel so subjective and personal and dreamlike, he actually generally has a, a very large depth of field. He doesn't have a shallow depth of field, yep. which is uh, sort of paradoxical because I, when I think of these sort of very subjective, very <coughs> texture, sweet luscious images I often think of a very shallow depth of field which is to say uh, only a small range of things are in focus and everything else is this kind of beautiful blurriness uh, rarely does he actually do that he actually likes to keep things almost everything in focus now you can find exceptions to that but as a rule he keeps as much in focus as possible well and I mean if you're shooting outside in nature and you have the sun the ultimate source of light then you have the the exposure to it that's right all that sort of stuff that's right exactly. um, a little film studies 101 here I'm gonna I'm gonna do. usurp the film professor um, yeah, if you want to do uh, a large depth of field, you need to have a lot of light, um, which is why, especially in old Hollywood when Orson Welles was working, that was kind of why it was amazing, because it's like, how, holy shit, how much light and what film stock did you have in which 
the Magnificent Ambersons gets visuals right. like and, that. And but, Citizen Kane, which yeah. you know, was the most notable thing mm-hmm. in some respects at the time. Is You can't talk about the depth of the field without talking about Orson Welles yeah. and his experiments with that. Um, and then, of course, uh, so those are the visual side, the editing side, and then the VO side are the, the, maybe the too much critical. Or, or, excuse me, the, the most critical. So uh, maybe the easiest way to parody Terrence Malick is to have this sort of like dispassionate voiceover that sort of acts in contrast to the visuals Mm -hmm. um and then his editing and this is where when people tell me that he's boring i find i bristle just a little bit although i understand why people say it's boring but malik's move is to give you nothing but the chocolate it's not so if you imagine uh, this is now an old school reference i never even really watched this show imagine an episode of scrubs they have the narrative and the narrative, 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 and at the very end they have this lovely montage where there's voiceover and you get to see this emotional impact. There's a moral, of, yeah. Yeah, but Mo- like, modern but, but family, it's meant to be. Yeah, this... It's meant to be very a very provocative and probably the most touching point of the show is this montage where it's cutting back and forth between all these different characters that have been affected with this voiceover that sort of tells you something with this lovely music yeah. yada 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 yeah that's where Modern Family lost me when they that became a regular fixture of their right. show so Terrence Malick is just an entire movie made up of that <laughs> and I think a lot of people maybe understandably see that as a cop out right where it's like instead of giving us the narrative structure to sort of justify these sort of emotional payoffs it's nothing but just sort of uh, when I think of other movie, filmmakers I think of them mm-hmm. in terms of scenes within their films with Malick for the most part you talk about sequences you don't yeah. really it's very rare to be like and there's exceptions, of course, and I can point out several in each movie that yeah. I talk about if we, if we really want to bore ourselves with that. But um, but most of the time you're talking about sequences, the sequence in which the soldiers are on R and R and in the Third Red Line, or the sequence in which uh, you know something happens in Tree Life that's like vaguely a, a story, but not really, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, so that's where it's, and, and I find this. So this is one of the things that's interesting. I think, and this is where I think a sort of interesting question comes up. I feel like people find that like a cheat and find that like, oh, that style is like almost rife for parody. And I feel like I can name maybe only a couple of filmmakers, and you can help me out with this, who have actually carved out such a specific and unique filmmaking style as to be like, someone can snap and say, uh, I can I can like parody that, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like Wes Anderson is one of them. That was the first Terrence Malick is one of them. Yeah. I can't think of very many others that have have taken film and in a moment when like a twenty second clip you can be like that's that's I, Terrence Malick that's, say, that's Wes Anderson. I'd say Terry Gilliam you could probably do that with Terry Gilliam a little bit right. Um, and then and this is unfortunate. I mean I don't like him at all, but he has a style. Zack Snyder you could probably do that Zach with Zack Snyder a little bit. Nicholas Winden Refn with his most recent three, the trio again of Drive and uh, there uh, not there will be blood. What? Uh, only God forgives, and also Neon Demon, right? Where he's got these very saturated mm-hmm. pinks and blues, and uh, this very cold stuff. A little bit Kubrick, right? You could a little bit. It would take more time, I think, but you could a little bit parody Kubrick. Yeah. But I guess I, I, what I find interesting is particularly with Malick and Wes Anderson, is they're criticized for this. There's it's like oh another Wes Anderson movie where they have this sort of uh, yeah yeah you know twee you know dollhouse set design and yep. and I, what I want to say is. You know, you look back and it's like, oh, Godard like reinvented cinema in the '60s and brought in this new style. Da da da. And I want to say, like, how many people can you name that have such a unique and carved out style, such a sort of complete and perfect sort of vision that you can say that about? So on the one hand, it's like, oh, Anderson's just making the same thing over and over again. It's like, yeah, but he actually made a invented his own cinema. 
you know? Yeah. And I think the same with Terrence Malick, where it can be a criticism or it can be a compliment, and I think it should be a compliment at the very least, of saying, like, he carved out his own style yeah. of this thing that people have never quite seen before, and I think he deserves credit for that. And uh, as I slyly try and get it back on... on it's, it's almost one of those things where, it, and to be really snooty or pretentious, it's like, well, you, you can't just say it was directed by Terrence Malick, but it's a Terrence Malick film. Like, right. Which has this, this, this impression or this idea of what it's going to be from beginning to end. Um, I would also offer, I think you could even just look at a frame and it's like, oh, that's a David Fincher movie. Yeah, a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Not quite as easily, but I, you definitely... there's. You can definitely define characteristics of a Fincher movie. And yep. weirdly, they end up sounding on paper like a Kubrick movie, but it's not. Yeah. The, the effect is way different. But they both have this sort of cold, calculated camera, this sort of perfectionistic production design, lighting design, camera design, lens choice. You know, everything is really... Uh, speaking of lens choice, uh, another visual style, Terrence Malick's, is everything, all of his lenses, especially, again, when in the sort of quint, what I could describe as the second act quintessential period on, yep. uh, it's always 24 millimeter and under, essentially. There's almost never anything above 24. So it's always, to clarify that, that's almost always wide angle, yeah. which is dangerous, especially with uh, big talent, because <laughs> uh, famous talent does not like to be shot with wide angles mm-hmm. because it uh, distorts features, it exaggerates features, so it makes them look like they have big noses, big ears. They look It's unflattering. Right. I, I mean, I mean, if anyone's seen the favorite, like a lot of those shots are basically fisheye. The De- favorite of this desperately year. Desperately want to see the favorite. I feel like yeah. I'm really missing it. Speaking of, I do movies badly. I've really been wanting to see the favorite, and I haven't gotten a chance to see it. Yet. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so uh, if I can kind of like, so my other sort of thesis. So like one sort of micro thesis of what I'm saying here today is like there's these sort of three parts of Malik's career that are easily definable and kind of interesting to sort of look at. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing is that. Malik's method is unlike other filmmakers in that at almost every step it's documentary. And what I mean by that is Malik will get an inspiration for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Badlands, it was based on two real-life serial killers. For yep. Thin Red Line, it's based on a book called mm-hmm. Thin Red Line. For The New World, uh, it's based just on the historical event of uh, Pocahontas and John yeah. Smith, so on and so forth. And he'll create a script that's actually, especially back in the day, back in Badlands and uh, Days of Heaven Day, it was actually like a script that, for the most part, looks like a normal script. And then when he hits the set, he just sort of is like, hey, camera guys, just shoot whatever. Right? So just kind of film whatever you see, especially if it's like nature, right? And this is the other essential sort of visual self Malik is these sort of shots of nature that Mm -hmm. are deeply metaphorical and a lot of people think it's pretentious. Understandably, it is maybe slightly pretentious, but Mm -hmm. like... Also, like, that's not unfair criticism. Like, if a filmmaker is aiming to be ambitious, it's like, ah, look at them trying to be ambitious. How dare they? <laughs> um, yeah, so you look at, um, yeah, uh, sorry, let me rewind. So uh, he arrives on set and he just sort of says, film anything, right? And as, again, we sort of move towards second and third phase of his career, it gets even more and more like that. So hmm. w- when shooting Tree of Life, uh, and probably even films before that, uh, his uh, DP uh, Lubeski, who uh, is also known for working with Cuarón, uh, Alfonso Cuarón, yeah. and they basically just trade him back and forth. So if you look at his like filmography, it's like uh, Malik Cuarón, Malik Cuarón, Cuarón, yeah. Malik, Malik Cuarón. Uh, and of course, if you look at either of those then, films, you see like some of those beautiful yeah. uh, DP like cinematography work in anything. And then a, a pit stop at Inyati too, and then back to yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you just and you're just like, man, look at the the coolest stuff out there and it's just like you just like 
you know, you look at any shot from The Revenant, and you're just like, I haven't seen that, by the way, but, you know, the trailer, and you're just like, this is some of the coolest, like, cinematography. You look at anything yeah. from The Tree of Life, even if you hate Tree of Life, if you watch the trailer, it's like the best trailer ever. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. But he would, they would show up, and, and Lubezki would, would say, like, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that name totally incorrectly, and I apologize. Uh, he would just say, like, it's luck. You, you show up, and you don't, you have a vague plan, but what you really do, the real direction is capture what you find. Capture what matches the... Uh, Character, uh, excuse me, the actor's mood. Capture what, most importantly, capture what matches what nature does that day. So actually, in Tree of Life, uh, most of it's set in this domestic household, and they had like three different houses matching each other, like uh, rooms specifically matching each other, each facing a different cardinal direction, so that they were able to sort of shift between them uh, because it's all natural light. And in fact, they actually uh, had set up just as a safety, uh, I think a fourth house that had lighting set up, and uh, sure enough, on the in case there's inclement weather, and sure enough, on the third day there was inclement weather, and they're like, let's film this. So they filmed all day with this uh, unnatural lighting, trying to match. Mm. And they apparently they watched the dailies that night, and Lubeski said like, um, like it felt like a betrayal. <laughs> it felt like a betrayal, and they're like ashamed of what they've done, of what they've done. And then they and they uh, both agreed. Uh, he and Malik said like, we're sending the lighting equipment back. We're never doing this again. Oh, wow, and they would actually joke on set Lubeski and uh, uh, and Malik. They would call themselves uh, the Channel Five News, because it wasn't about like filming; it was about capturing, right? And there's this great uh, sequence, which actually I had kind of forgotten about, but there's this great sequence in uh, uh, Tree of Life, again, sort of unrelated to the plot, as pretty much everything is, because there is no real plot. Jessica Chastain uh, sees a butterfly land on a 1950s automobile, and she like reaches for it, and it dances around her, and then spins around, and lands on her finger, and you're like, "Is this CG? What are we doing here?" <laughs> And then, like, hops off her finger and lands on a something on the ground, and she goes over and, like, pets it, and then a cat walks into the frame and starts nuzzling with her as she pets this butterfly, and you're just like, how is this happening? Like, uh, they have some sort of butterfly wrangler? And it's like, no, like, literally, like, Jessica Chastain is, like, prepping for a different scene. She sees this butterfly. They're like, go, go, go! And, like, some random dude is, like, pulling focus because they're just, like, everybody is, like, a on board with the styles like anything we can capture mm -hmm. let's capture so jessica chastain barely out of makeup just starts chasing a butterfly and they got like two you know randos operating the the focus <laughs> the focus pulling and they're like capturing this crazy beautiful moment uh that's sort of you know irrespective of of what the plans were for the day and it's a, a striking sequence I, i'd have to imagine for vastly different reasons <laughs> polar opposite reasons like you could have a crew member that's like i hate working on james cameron films because he's like a slave driver and i'm going to be working my ass off like for maybe 16 hours a day for like who knows how long and then you have another person who's like i hate working for malik because i don't know what the fuck i'm doing day in day out and yeah. who knows i'd be very curious like you know like uh um lubeski and his the cam op is just as critical and unfortunately i don't know his name which is uh sad because the cam op on all of uh, the camera operating. So the guy, the cameraman, is what we just saying. The cameraman. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I go on set. They're called again. Whatever. Uh, the the uh, cameraman on um, Malik movies is essential. I think a lot of people just think of that as like some sort of like you know twentieth down the food chain yeah, dude. Quite that doesn't important. matter. But yeah. like in a Malik movie, the cam op is like you know holding the pin as well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where I was going with this. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I just interject a note. I mean, it's funny that you talk about luck because what the one of the movies we won't be talking about is Days of Heaven, which is like they shot that entirely at Golden Hour. Which, right. if you're not familiar with what Golden right. Hour is, it's that little bit of window in the morning when the sun is just coming up and not quite over the horizon yet, or at night when the sun is going down is just below the horizon, right. but there's and like 
that could be an entire day, like, hey, we're shooting this, like, oh, we didn't get it, so... And the story is legendary, right? The story of that is legendary, which I'm sure you know, which is uh, which is that the producers would be like, shoot, 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 throughout the day, and Malcolm would be like, okay, okay, and he'd be like dragging his feet and messing around, and they're kind of like, are you waiting for Golden Hour? And he's just like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, we're shooting some stuff over here, we're shooting some... And then, of course, with like, the second Golden Hour sets in, they're like shooting everything that they could possibly can, oh. and then the next day, they're dragging their feet... Um, oh, what I was going to say about the came up is a, a, a critical role for a Malik film, but I would be very curious to your earlier point, uh, what the sort of average sort of like uh, person on set is how they feel about. It. Like, I'm sure the came up loves it. I'm sure the Lubezki loves it. I know the actors love it, but I would be curious, like your sort of typical grip or whatever, or if they would be like yeah. just annoyed by this, or if they'd be like, we're a part of something great. I mean, it's hard for me to, from what little uh, contact I've had with sort of your typical person that's not in like the top ten credits of a movie. Mm-hmm. It's not as sacred. The process of filmmaking is not no. as sacred to them, of course, because they're they're doing like jobs that aren't don't feel sacred in the moment, right? Yeah, I, I mean, a, a below the line guy is like, hey, sure, I held a boom mic for a Malik film, but I also held a boom mic for this right, commercial. Right. Like, it's yeah, and, yeah. And I'd be curious to know if they're like, oh, I love working with him because he's doing these magical things, or if they just be like, ah, it's another job. Yeah. Also, it's kind of an annoying job because we don't have lights, we don't know where we're gonna go. Yeah. Uh, another, I mean, another act about Tree of Life is that they had like a, something like a four or five block radius all set designed so that if Brad Pitt or Jessica Chastain were getting in an argument they could chase each other out the house and there'd be no danger of anything getting in the way and mm-hmm. they wanted that flexibility um, so yeah and even early in his career uh, and I feel like I start almost need to start kind of going chronologically even though I, we might not be in that part of the show yet but like if we talk about Badlands it's not quite fully formed yet and that's why I sort of call this like the first period of, of Malick where mm-hmm. it feels kind of conventional and I would argue feels a lot like especially to uh, someone way past that time someone in 2019 it feels a lot like uh, a new Hollywood film from the 70s it feels in some respects like Bonnie and Clyde it feels in some respects like Mean Streets it feels kind of like a young person going and he was 30 at the time so he wasn't super young but it still feels kind of like a young person making a cool interesting movie that sort of defies some Hollywood things Mm -hmm. Um, like off the beat, like uh, you know, off the mainstream track, but not exactly the most avant-garde. Like he's yeah. not making a race or not, yeah, he's... not revolutionary. I mean, I will say there's these sort of unique uh, things about it, right? Where there's this voiceover that again is sort of contrapuntal to use a. Uh, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay. I a... just I heard your degree come. Yeah, I was gonna there, say yeah. I really need to show that off, which sort of acts in counterpoint with the visuals, right? So, you know, uh, the the movie itself is about these. Uh, sort of lovers that go on the lamb and sort of do a killing spree. You, you finish the movie, I find myself finishing the movie and kind of having forgotten it's basically a serial, serial killer movie. It's mm-hmm. really bizarre to be like, I just watched a serial killer movie. It didn't feel like it. It sort of felt like something else. But Sissy Spacek's um, voiceover is, is just sort of, again, this sort of ethereal, dispassionate, sort of expressionistic thing that acts in counterpoint to a lot of the, the action. Now, it's not quite as much in counterpoint. They're still like, they're hiding out the woods and she'll actually say like, when we hit out in the woods... Mm-hmm. Something, something, something. I've got a really good Sissy Spacek impression. No, I, I thought she was in the room with us right now. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because actually I spent a lot of time watching Terrence Malick movies the past couple days, and I spent a lot of time in front of the mirror mastering my Sissy Spacek impression. And I you, feel like it's paid off. Do you want to attempt the the voiceover of the young girl from Days of Heaven? Days of, when I get there, I will. It will be, <laughs> it will be dead on perfect. Um, yeah. So I mean, Malick uh, claimed that he was kind of aiming for like a fairy tale mm-hmm. um, rendition of it, but it sort of feels like this sort of I mean, I, I see it, and maybe this is just my sort of academic political side coming through. I sort of see it as a sort of uh, metaphor for like reckless American exceptionalism, where we sort of like they're sort of haphazardly killing and sort of like 
not realizing it and sort of like mistaking notoriety for just sort of celebrity or some sort of accolades, mm-hmm. right? Which can, you know, not to get political about it, but it can be seen a little bit in the sort of behavior of America historically on the world stage where mm-hmm. there's sort of like we sort of clump through things and they're just like, but people love us, right? Am I right? People so, are like so partying I, with us. I'm seeing you. I, I don't mean to, to usurp you. I did please earlier. Do. I don't want to. I don't mean to now. But no, I, I, since we're kind of funneling it into the specific ones, I kind of want to wrap up a more general thing. Yeah. Than we can, uh, but so in with mainly two questions for you. Um, and uh, so because we have and then, you know, let me stop stuttering and use my words. I have a college degree as well, Andrew. Um, because I, I know once we get into the second period, we can even you can even kind of get more into that when we talk right. about specific titles. Don't, just don't sound smarter than me. I want to sound smart. So let's make sure we delete this part because this, this is the pure me. I just really want to sound smart. No, so. that's... Okay, that's, okay, that's okay, go and okay, I'll, go I'll do ADR work where I'm yeah. like, duh, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, and uh, action. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, the, the one thing, because I, I know for a fact you're not... You're not going to be recommending anything from like his later period, and I guess I want to talk a little bit about that. In your opinion, what what did he lose in that, or what like ha- like what? Because I mean, no one really raves about to the wonder or oh, Night of Cups my friend. or something. Oh my like, friend! Oh my friend! Yeah, like rings what, of paper to talk what about. What happened to Terrence Malick? I guess. So let me to answer that question, man. You're like, oh, this feels like it's going to be a monologue. Uh, so <laughs> I, I feel like to answer that question, I have to bring up. There's detractors. You might not believe this, but it turns out not everybody wants to watch like a two and a half hour film that sort of is existentially trying to connect, you know, the birth and death of the universe with 1950s Americana in Texas. I'm shocked. A lot of people might think that sounds pretentious and boring and the fact that there's actually no storyline that really goes along with it, at least not conventionally. Right. That might not, you know, ring true for a lot of people. So, (laughs) you know, I think pretty famously it can uh, when Tree of Life... uh, played like one night it was booed and one night it got innovation. I, I might be misremembering that but also that sounds like can right I feel like they're yeah, it always either booing or clapping I don't know if that's a French thing or what uh, exactly goes on so all that to say I, there's a lot of people that love Terrence Malick it's a certain type of person and I feel like I should say this like, I'm going to say this is up front this is probably we're deep in the podcast at this point but I, it's entirely subjective but that's the point Malick's filmmaking yeah. is subjective and either you're with it or you're not and I'm not saying if you're with it you're smart I'm not saying if you're with it you're more intellectual I'm saying if you're with it you just are on the wavelength and I feel like there's like super smart intellectuals who love it super smart intellectuals who hate it and I feel like there's people who are like um, not film people that love it they're just like I've never seen anything like this this is amazing and there's not film people that hate it right it just kind of goes with whatever so all that to say the people who really don't like it really don't like it (laughs) and there's a sort of resentment of like oh you think you're gonna do this style and it's crap and I think I've I've to use an expression like, I've got your number, Malik. I can tell all you do is this one trick. Much like, again, Wes Anderson. You've uh-huh. got this one trick, and you try and do it over and over again, and it's not very good. Now, the the benefit that Malik had was he was waiting years. So, just to give you an overview, Badlands, 73. Days of Heaven, 78. 20 years later, then Red Line, 98. Almost 10 years later, New World, 2005. Mm-hmm. Six years later, Tree of Life, 2011. And then comes... A movie in 2012, a movie in 2015, a movie in 2017. Mm -hmm. So one thing that... Okay, so I have a lot of sort of thoughts and and arguments about this. One of the things that I think is uh, worth noting is that, like, all of his movies are historical movies. Historically, I should say. Uh, All of his early first and second period movies were historical. Uh, Mm -hmm. Badlands is, like, 1950s. Days of Heaven is what, like 1930s or something? Yeah, I'm not sorry. Really sure. uh, you know, obviously, uh, Thin Red Line is World War II. Uh, Tree of Life is 1950s. New World is obviously during the birth of America. So on and so forth. And then comes uh, after Tree of Life, 
to The Wonder, which is set in modern day. Night of Cups, which is set in modern day. Song to Song, which is set in modern day. It's also worth noting those three movies are all essentially love stories, kind of love triangles. I mean, that's a that's a reductionist, but essentially that set in modern day. And I think with Malick's style, since he's so impressionistic, it doesn't do well with presenting something interesting with subtle differences. And what I mean by that, I'm going to reference a filmmaker that I should not be referencing right now. I feel like Woody Allen in the 1980s, yeah, and, everybody, and everybody gasps and, <laughs> and pl- clutches their pearls. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, Woody Allen could make made like 10 different movies that are all set in New York, all about like upper middle class people that are cheating on each other. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of great. If you like Woody Allen, if, uh, like obviously a bunch of, you know, everybody insert your prefaces and apologies yep, sure. or whatever. But if we could be on that, if you like Woody Allen, you can watch 10 of his movies all set in the exact same milieu, all about the exact same thing. And mm-hmm. they feel unique and interesting. There's Hannah and their sisters and Manhattan and Annie Hall. Some of those aren't in the eighties, but from that period. And they're all cool and they're interesting and whatever, da, 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 da notwithstanding the problems. Uh, Malik is not that kind of filmmaker. Malik cannot, he can only paint in broad strokes. Now, there's a lot of things about that are very, very specific, uh, and in fact, more specific than even Woody Allen, but the aggregate of his film is a very broad thing, right? So I think perhaps it's, he can't do contemporary films well. Perhaps they're too personal. So, for example, obviously Tree of Life is a very personal film. So, yeah. I hope this isn't a rabbit trouble. Let me get a little bit into his personal life, what we know. Uh, when he was younger, uh, he was part of three boys, uh, which is like Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, his one brother uh, got in a car wreck, which uh, I believe killed his wife and burned him badly. Mm-hmm. His other brother went off to Spain to be like a guitar virtuoso and uh, studied into this master of guitar. And he ended up breaking both of his hands because he felt he wasn't good enough in theory and they committed suicide. Okay. And if you watch All Tree right. of Life with that knowledge, you'll see that the brother... <laughs> That is sort of adored, and that sort of whose death sort of like initiates all the the, the entire film itself. Mm-hmm. You'll see the youngest brother with a guitar, and at one point just a guitar by itself in the room. And you see like it's very personal. And uh, mm-hmm. also his father and his mother were like that. He was uh, he loved and was deeply close to his mother. He his father he felt was abrasive. Also, interestingly enough, his father liked to take pictures of the family. And Malik hated having his picture taken, unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of other things, right? That, that was problematic. Okay, so Tree of Life, it works. It's set in historical time. It's got these very personal things. But then the other ones seem even more on the nose. So To the Wonder, um, I'm one of the few people that kind of defends it. I've only seen it once. Okay. One, excuse me, once. I need to rewatch it. Um, but I, I will be the first to admit, it's like a little bit over two hours. It should be a 90-minute movie. <laughs> it should be a 90-minute movie. Mm-hmm. And you could maybe say that about all those movies. I wouldn't. I would say To the Wonder should be 90 minutes of solid awesomeness. Instead, it's like two hours and it just goes on and on. But uh, To the Wonder is about a, a guy who um, meets this French woman and is in love with her, but then there are this kind of problems and he, he leaves her for a while and they get in arguments and he just disappears for days, weeks, months. Turns out Terrence Malick was in a relationship with a French woman who he brought to America and would uh-huh. they get in arguments, he'd disappear for days, weeks, hours. Also, she had a, a child, much like the woman in uh, To the Wonder. Also, uh, he wasn't the greatest dad. Ironically, Tree of Life is all about you know trying to reconcile. A, yep. lo- a lot of it, uh, yep. one angle of it is trying to reconcile this father <laughs> yeah. who uh, wasn't always the easiest. And again, I think it's too simplistic to be like, he's a bad dad. He's a lovely dad. And I think if you watch Tree of Life thinking like, oh, he's a bad dad, you see nothing but like, affection and Brad Pitt's physical performance is like him touching them in these very sweet, wonderful, loving ways. He, But he's difficult, right? Yep. And ironically, Terrence Malick became, it seems like he kind of became a little bit that kind of person 
kind of became his father. He wouldn't let his he wouldn't let there be a TV in the house. Oof. Uh, you know, yada yada yada, and would disappear for weeks at a time. And eventually, the the wouldn't talk to his uh, partner, this French woman, about uh, about his filmmaking. We say this is separate from my personal life. If he was reading, a, he wouldn't let anybody into his office. If he was reading a book, uh, he would leave it always leave it face down. If she would say, "Oh, I want to read that book," he'd say, "Okay," and he'd buy her her own copy. He would uh, only listen to his music in theory, like on headphones, and leave cassette tapes face down so she couldn't see what he was listening to. There's just this kind of peculiar, and again, maybe some of these things are uh, sort of tabloid or, or gossipy. And maybe a little bit inaccurate on one side, but mm-hmm. these have been reported in, again, this big Vanity Fair article about him, which seems sort of reliable at the very least. And, right. and the fact that it matches up almost identically with what you see in To the Wonder, mm-hmm. it seems problematic. Followed by Song to Song, which, oh, excuse me, Night of Cups, which actually I haven't seen, yeah. but I've heard very bad things about it. I should check it out. Uh, and then Song to Song, which I saw in a theater, I think it was the Sunshine Theater that has been closed down. In oh, yeah, yeah, and moved to the most inconvenient location I could think of. Yeah, and I saw that with a very very empty crowd, and then for some reason this one couple of like five sets of people decided to sit right next to me nice. and were like yawning loudly during it, go. and I actually got up and like slid down like ten chairs because like, don't ruin this for me, this is like the new Malik that I want to see. And it was just, it, just it, it was a little bit ruined by these people loudly making noise and expressing their discontent. But then I also just realized it's not very good. It's just not very good, I think. And again, I need to rewatch it, but it just feels like him. It feels like what he went through. And uh, so Net of, uh, Net of Cups and Song by Song were mm-hmm. filmed essentially simultaneously or back yeah, to back. I heard about that. They're set kind of in Austin, which is his music scene. He's really into music. They're mm-hmm. really into music. It's all music-related stuff. It just feels like one question is, like, is he doing too much? Is he too prolific? But part of me guesses, based on what I know about Thin Red Line, based on what I know about New World and Tree of Life, these are movies he's had been preparing for for years and years and years and years, for decades, literally. Mm-hmm. So the idea that he's suddenly prolific and then you say, well, he's too prolific, he doesn't have enough time to let them simmer, I don't know if that works because I'm guessing all those movies he's had simmering for a while. So the question remains, like, what does it mean? And then my final maybe argument for one version of why it might be the case is because I argue that his films are like documentaries because when they get there, they capture what they capture and then whatever they capture, when they take it to the editing room, it's exactly like a documentary, which yeah. is to say they take whatever the narrative was and they reconstruct it into something totally different. And that is a fact that they bring this army of editors, and by army I mean like three to five people, mm-hmm. and they just like randomly try and construct sequences from it. And it's absolutely irrespective of what was in the script, why they shot it, is a complete mishmash. Uh-huh. Uh, an example of that if I may digress from a digression, is like in the third act of uh, Thin Red Line, they, there's this big sequence where they're on R&R, like rest and relaxation after this big battle. And there's just the famous ponderous voiceover reflecting on things and mm-hmm. guys re- relaxing. And then out of nowhere, there's this sequence or this the, a series of shots of like their base being attacked and like uh, things being blown up and the guys running everywhere. And it is not addressed by the voiceover. It's not addressed as a plot point. And you're like, this was probably a pretty critical scene at some point in <laughs> right. the filming because this, all their budget, that huge part of their budget went into blowing up an entire base. Uh, so all that to say, like, again, it's just like in the sort of final process, they're like, oh yeah, I remember at filming the documentary, we saw this one thing that was cool. It doesn't really fit in the main part of our movie. So let's just, so all that to say, why might these final movies, the third, the late period Malik be bad? One of my arguments, which maybe is a little too glib and convenient given that one of my central theses is this argument, yeah. maybe it's like in the same way that documentary filmmakers by definition cannot always knock it out of the park because everything they film is not always going to be interesting. Yeah. In the same way, maybe he's just gotten unlucky three times in a row where they film the material and the documentary essentially is 
just not that interesting. I, well, and it was also because the just based on what you have said, having not seen any of his late uh, of his late period stuff, also kind of seems like by him sort of looking more inward versus outward, like almost kind of like well, somehow hamstrings. I'm like, oh, we're not interested in like this personal story right. that you're telling, which is weird because. Like the it best contrary, yeah, yeah, like contrary some of the best films opinion, are right? these personal ones. Yeah, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, right? That's how yeah. it wasn't his first movie, but people consider his first movie because it's the one he finally mm-hmm. did his own thing, right? But and was great, like. Right. But so that 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 does seem very weird. So I guess uh, the the one question before we kind of get into the recommendations, and I guess if you've been paying close attention to this podcast, you probably know what three he's going to be talking about. <clears> yeah. Before we kind of get into them, so I guess the the question is, <laughs> the Terrence Malick movie you want to see. And that could be either something he started working on and didn't finish, something that was taught, or even just like, hey, I'd like to see Terrence Malick do a, this. Oh, thing. it's very easy. It's Terrence Malick doing Halloween. You just brought it up, and it's the greatest <laughs> idea I've ever heard in my life. Um, uh, I'd love, I, 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 I would love to see him take on a genre again. Mm-hmm. And again, like back to my Woody Allen comparison, Woody Allen can do the same thing over and over and over, and it's like a lot of people disagree with this, but I think for the most part. It's pretty interesting because he has these subtle nuances and distinctions that can make it so that can survive. He can survive on that. Maybe not everybody likes it, but he can survive on that. Terrence Malick is impressionistic. That's the that that's literally the one word definition of his style. It's impressionistic. Right. And I think being like ah yeah, but this one's set in Austin, the music scene. This one's set as a music producer, or I think that's what Nav Cup says. Yeah. This one's set in Oklahoma as a, but they're all relation. He just doesn't. It's broad stroke. So I, I think he needs to kind of go back to doing a period piece that feels distinct. From these other things, and I would love to see some sort of—he'll never do it, obviously. But I just—I'm also a huge, a rabid horror fan. Like yeah. you would think, based on this podcast, I want nothing but pretentious art house films. <laughs> My real heart is with like really exploitative horror film genre films. Once again, Andrew loved the Suspiria remake. Uh, yeah, although I consider that uh, lofty and, and pretentious as well. But <laughs> yes, but it's also like mixing pretension and horror films, which yep. is a delight for me. So, so yeah, I, I yeah, the easiest answer because I didn't, wasn't prepared for this is like, yeah, I love your Halloween. <laughs> your Halloween idea is absurd. But like, if I saw that he was doing something like that, I would be so delighted. Well, in okay, so because it's funny, the more I thought about it, the more I, I kind of agree with you. Uh, the Terrence Malick film I want to see would not even be Halloween, but Haddonfield on November first, and the people dealing with like the fallout and that kind of thing, and like the mood. And uh, Haddonfield is where the original Halloween takes place. Ah, oh, yes. Um, you you apparently self-described voracious horror film. Um, Haddonfield is where Michael Myers did his killing spree. Ironically, I don't love 80s slasher, um, like tentpole films, actually. Although okay. I love the new David Gordon Green. Okay, Halloween. well, Halloween was 1978, you pretentious son of a bitch. But anyway. Uh, uh, it fits in that. Uh, fit, all the sequels were in the 80s. Right. So but, like that's but, like, uh, but, um, like, you know, so Michael Myers is allegedly killed by Dr. Loomis on October 31st. Right. Is the final scene where he looks down and he's gone in the right. original one. So I want to see Terrence Malick exploring Haddonfield on November 1st. <laughs> And like what that, uh, what the mood is in the town, like what people are talking about. It'd be either either so hilariously boring, but kind of awesome. But but there's still like there's a mood hanging <laughs> over everyone. Yeah, you know? you're right. Like especially think about it, Terrence Malick, like when the sun is coming up on November first right. in Hatfield. Right. Or I'd like to see him do something which is overtly political, only in the sense of it takes place in like the White House or the governorship, and just like this other side of like because you think of like a politics or like a Wall Street thing, it's like. Yeah. It's like fast moving and like I want to see the other side of that basically. <laughs> you want to see West Wing Terrence Malick stuff. <laughs> basically. So actually I have good good news for both of those points. Okay. One, his next movie is called something like Radigund and it's a political movie. Oh. Um, 
about a, a, a conscious objector during World War II. So oh, that's wow. pseudo, okay. kind of political, not okay. quite like straight politics, but yeah. whatever. It could be interesting. Again, it's historical, so it gives me more hope. We'll huh. see. Um, and the other thing is, uh, if you want to talk about like uh, impressionistic movies with voiceover dealing with aftermath mm. and destruction, I'm sure you've seen it. Vim Vender's uh, Wings of Desire is exactly that. Have you not seen one? The, I've seen? seen zero Vim Vender's films. Uh, oh, it, wow. he, he is a prime candidate for... He uh, is, and I am a prime candidate for not doing that because I only like, of what I've seen of his, I only like Wings of Desire, okay. and it's amazing, and it's ex- almost exactly that, but instead of it being like, oh, Mike Myers, what do you do here? It's more like the Nazis, what have we done here? It's okay. this sort of like 19... Didn't, I'm wrong decades a lot, so I want to say 1980s, but I could be wrong. Did he uh, do? Did he do Parish, Texas? That was. And I was bored to tears. Okay. Well, if, if anyone out there wants to come on, I do movies badly and talk yeah. about Vim vendors. Email yeah. me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. And yeah, and somebody can actually who actually likes Paris, Texas, and wasn't bored to tears. But yeah. Um, okay, um, so we've talked about Terrence Malick. We've talked about what you want to see, but now we should talk about what I am going to be seeing. Which is, of course, the recommendations. And, of course, I preface, as always, um, I will get into more detail of the availability of these titles when I do the individual episodes. Um, So, your number one recommendation should be pretty obvious based on when you said, this is what I'm going to be talking about. Yes. So, your your first recommendation for me is... Is Days of Heaven. Oh, excuse me. Badlands. Wow. I I thought you were joking. Yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, No, it's Badlands. And I choose that over... uh, Days of Heaven because I think it's interesting to see the earlier it, well one I like it more it's, mm-hmm. more, it's more enjoyable Fair. there's straight narrative in it mm-hmm. uh, uh, compared to his other stuff I think who, someone who doesn't know his ponderous style would be like wow this is really sort of exist, right, sort of, yeah. uh, impressionistic and whatever mm-hmm. but no it, it's it's narrative it's got scenes of serial killers kind of kind of killing people I mean mm-hmm. again it, at the time apparently the, sh- the violence was shocking now the violence is very very far from shocking in my mind which is interesting because it still came out like a few years after Bonnie and Clyde, which right. was like that if you was like. Compare it to Bonnie and Clyde, it is Sesame Street. I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's it's. I mean, you know, the final, obviously, the most notorious shot from Bonnie and Clyde, pun intended. Uh, you know, Zing. Or, yeah. or, or you look at you know, uh, God. When, when did Godfather come out? Probably afterwards, unfortunately. Godfather was seventy four, I believe. So the year afterwards. Okay, so yeah, it's a year after. But yeah, I mean, obviously, the death of Sonny, which is basically the exact same thing as yeah. the mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, those are way more violent, way more violent and graphic, and I, and I feel like you know, I mean, I guess it's maybe shocking because it's it's in Badlands, it's, it's meaningless, right? It's this sort of meaningless. Uh, nihilism does uh, add it like a I, like a little. I guess, except for the fact that the movie's so already kind of so beautiful that you're kind of just like, I found myself a little, and again, my my heart is a cold dead husk of mm-hmm. having watched so many horrible, That's you know, true. terrible things that like. <laughs> You know, you're like, let's uh, pop in a Serbian film for breakfast. That sounds kind of nice. Oh, my God. Okay, maybe not that. But, you know, it's just, it's you know, but I've seen that, and I was sort of like, like, oh, okay. Um, and that's what uh, separates you and me. No, uh, other movies. But, I, you know, there's certain movies that, like, mm-hmm. I, I will, I, I still am very upset by. But for whatever reason, that just felt like a, it felt like such a conspicuous attempt at being shocking. It's like uh, watching third graders say the F word, because they can. And you're like, uh, oh, yeah, okay. that's not, I'm not troubled by that. I see that you're, what you're trying to do is sound like a profane grown-up but you're just a kid doing that okay. and I feel a little bit not to be a jerk about the filmmakers of Serbian film it just felt so conspicuously uh, trying to be shocking it's the sort of grand guignol uh, effect uh, of, of yeah, like okay. and now we're gonna well I'm not gonna say the more horrible things in the Serbian film but <laughs> but yeah for anyone who knows and now we're gonna do this thing and now we're gonna do that thing and now there's gonna be a baby involved you're just kinda like yep, okay yep, whatever guys yep. I, I read the Wikipedia summary of that and that oh, you haven't enough, watched it? that was enough for me you might be surprised how much it's just it's unaffecting because it's just clearly someone trying to it's like going to a, uh, a magic show and you're like I know this is all 
obviously fake. It's nice. It's fun. I get uh, serving films not so. You're talking about magic shows. Yeah, my analogy. My analogy is completely broken. (laughs) There's no falling apart. There's no point at which I can compare Mm -hmm. a magic show other than the fact that like it's conspicuously an act of whatever. But I'd say there's a a difference here uh, because at least uh, I've I've seen like magic. I've I've gone to see when Penn and Teller had their their short lived like. My bar- magic analogy is a complete no, no, failure I, from the ground. No, no, but, but yeah. I, I know, I know what you're saying because it's more of the like, well, the, once you know how it's done, there's still an enjoyment to be yeah. made of it. With the exception of magic, is like you know it's fake, right. but you don't know how it's done, so you're still so like I, I've read the summary. I know what a Serbian film is. Right. I'm not entirely interested in like how they've done it, basically. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. So you've seen, you've you've read up in the shots. Yeah, and, and I, I know okay, what they whatever. were trying to do with it, and cool, appreciate it. Right. But I there's no. Do I don't, you? Do like, you appreciate it? Nobody appreciates that. I. I understand what they are trying to do with right. it, but right. there's—I I don't see a need to expose myself. It's just like ir, like irreversible too is the same way. Like I know right. what he's doing, and I know right. what he, but I—I I don't, I don't see right. the need to sit through a nine-minute rape sequence. Yeah, that number keeps on getting bigger and bigger. Last time it was twenty minutes. I, no, I, I think I, I think it is nine. I think it's minutes. nine minutes um, long. But yeah, anyway, which anyway. is still nine minutes way too long. Yeah, it's uh, you know obviously that film. I think we've talked about him before. Yeah, we, we've uh, talked about. He, him I'm kind of. I'm always a little bit curious, but every time I see his movies, I'm always just like, okay, good job, buddy. It's not that. <laughs> anyway, so Badlands. Anyway, Badlands. No, it's nothing like this. Because one thing that, <laughs> what, and I, I, this was a thought that I had, but I at least wanted to save for the discussion of this title. But it's just that, like we are following two serial killers, and yet from what I remember, the film is visually quite beautiful. Elega- is it elegaic, elegaic? I don't know how uh, that works. Legiac. I actually don't know the pronunciation of that but, either. Anyway, but just like, and, it, and then like, there, there's such a a softness and a warmthness to it like yeah. visually and emotions like wait this is these are two serial killers here right and i could see how someone watching this would kind of be like well this is obscene because like these are two killers and yet there's such a a little bit yeah like a little bit but there's also it's the maybe the only malik film that actually is funny <laughs> uh and that is a very much uh obviously a lot of people he takes himself so seriously which again if you're in the mood and mm-hmm. you're on his wavelength is fine yep. but it is rarely anything even approximating funny. Uh, Badlands is funny. Like, it starts off where it's like, spoiler central, I guess, the like first line of the movie is uh, Martin Sheen's character is on a, like a trash truck route okay. and uh, looks at this dog and he's like, I'll pay you a buck to eat this dog or to eat this collie. And the guy walks over and he's like, eh, I don't think so. Also, it's not a collie. <laughs> it's just this like really great like it sort of feels almost snappy like a cl- mm. cute clever little bit you know it does it does like based on the description kind of sound like of, of course it's it was rife for the new Hollywood wave because it's like we're telling like we're telling a standard story but I'm telling it in a different sort right. of way right um, but still quite close to mainstream and, and yeah this is the one that had uh, three cinematographers Yep, uh, because uh, yeah, uh, something something like that. I know at least one of them left, and I'm, I'm guessing if there were two, there's something a little bit wonky about how things were credited. I feel like in that movie, because okay. looking up and comparing things, and I, I, yeah. but I know at least there's one other one that that left. I'm I'm, I'm basing it strictly on I do and I I do movies badly. IMDb, the actual thing, the actual acronym. Uh, Brian <laughs> Brian Proben, uh, who is someone with whom I'm not familiar. Um, Stephen or Stefan uh, S T E V A N Larner. Who, let's see, he also was responsible for shooting Caddyshack. A beautiful film, a beautiful uh, film. Uh, and, um, the Be- and Beauty and the Beast, the uh, the TV version with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman. Oh, uh, Ron Perlman. And then uh, Tak Fujimoto, who is, of course, um, quite popular with working with Darren Aronofsky. Mm-hmm. Um, and did he win for Black Swan, the Oscar? I couldn't tell you. I, no, I don't think he did. But, but I mean, ta- but, I mean Tak Fujimoto, obviously, is like, this is a fucking... 
Yeah, it's but, legit. Dude. Yeah. Um, and amazingly, they came on, and that's like half of the movie was shot with him, half the movie was shot with these other guys, or at least one of them. Uh, and there's no real sense of inconsistency. It's really a kind of a marvel of that. Yeah. Um, Which maybe does. I mean, if they're if they're walking off because of their frustration with this first time filmmaker, like, well, there's kind of a testament to this first time filmmaker is that like he everything was held together. Right. It's it's remarkable that that happened. Uh, but already he was sort of like more interested in heading off with like the second unit crew to like. Mm-hmm. Um, shoot random shots of nature not as much as it would be um, and uh, he'd already sort of been like alright we're going to do this female narrator thing um, and specifically he actually wrote those lines for Sissy Spacek meaning to sort of emulate the sort of flowery language of like teen romance magazines or novels hmm. which is kind of if you watch it again and listen to that there's interesting is interestingly there is kind of actually a little bit of sense to that you're kind of like, is this like Malik existential stuff? Or is this actually just flowery teen romance uh, dialogue? Which is kind of interesting. Now, do, like. do you think he has a sympathy and a fondness for these characters? Like, I mean, does Badlands trying to like explain who these characters are? Is it just kind of like, oh, it just so happened that here's two people that also just happen to be serial killers? I think I think it's like all of his... Th- I mean, so his main theme period, which again, a lot of people criticize because basically one theme, is the tension between nature and God, however mm, okay. uh, people may view that. He keeps it pretty broad, although he has very very much did have a Christian upbringing and uh, is very familiar with the Bible, supposedly. And um, But again, he was a philosopher, so kind of, I think his conception of God is probably pretty broad. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe even to the point of it not being individual, but, you know, I'm guessing it's a sort of conglomeration of a lot of the world religions. Uh, and it's meant to be kind of a big... Uh, having said that, though, it's the sort of sense of God versus nature. And nature represents sort of chaos, and destruction although also beauty um and then god represents like grace and hope but there are this there's a sort of tension right and the theme is not just that it's that in man right Mm -hmm. so it's saying there's these two elements that are warring within man this sort of capacity for grace but this capacity for horribleness and unfortunately this is the key that unlocks all of his movies right which again is criticized for but also who cares like if you're interested in that it's interesting um so i I think he is sympathetic insofar as like what is what is man like what is and i I think also maybe at this age he was also i think there's a little bit of like a a nihilism that often plays out in young male filmmakers you see that in like david fincher in particular you see that in a lot of different you know these sort of younger male filmmakers and i think there is a little bit of like let's throw this sort of nihilistic like violence this meaningless violence that happens what are we gonna do with it you know and i think like badlands is that it's sort of like playing out these all these themes that are in their his development of them is sort of in his infancy in terms of his filmmaking style although he had been teaching again philosophy at mit uh but yeah it's still the same idea wrapped up in a different sort of coat of paint mm-hmm. um and a, and a sort of more youthful coat of paint well and i'm sure there's at least one listener out there who said how dare you assume that there is a key to unlock um every terrence Malick film so yeah, I always like there's this uh, great Flannery O'Connor quote that's something to the effect of like people think that theme is like the string that holds together the bag of chicken feed and if you just pull this one string it spills this contents out and explosing <laughs> itself and she's like it's not like that and I, and I agree with that I agree with that I mean I think it's sort of uh, facile to sort of say like oh yeah you got the theme you, you understand it and I think a lot of students are tempted to be like because high school teaches them how important theme is yeah. it doesn't teach uh, you know it's not it's hard to teach a sort of balanced sense of like yeah, isn't this wonderful? We can identify themes, but that's not the point. Isn't just some sort of academic exercise. The point is how it uh, touches you, right? Uh, how it sort of involves you and how it, it moves you, right? 
Uh, it's just being able to articulate the precision with precision why it moves you or why it touches you or why it feels right in some way or true in some way. Mm. So. Well said. Um, and so I think uh, we can move along to uh, the next recommendation, which, um, once again, if you've been paying attention, I'm pretty sure that you've deduced the next recommendation from Andrew is... Thin Red Line. The Thin Red Line from 1998. Yep. So um, Thin Red Line comes after 20 years of sort of absence and is famously like, what did he do? Well, I can tell you what he did. He worked on a bunch of screenplays, worked on a bunch of attempted to adapt a play, of a stage play of Sancho the Bailiff. Hmm. Um... He actually was developing for several years uh, a screenplay for The Elephant Man, uh, which then oh, wow. his... I, I don't know how this happened. I'd be very curious. Then he discovered that David Lynch, with whom he shared lots of friends <laughs> and a degree at the exact same year, uh, uh, made his film, mm-hmm. uh, ironically, or I should say coincidentally, uh, produced by um, uh, Mel Brooks, Yeah, mm-hmm. which incidentally, uh, Badlands uh, was released as a double feature with Blazing Saddles and Badlands as a preview, and audiences obviously hated Badlands <laughs> because of that. Anyway, so we did a little bit of trivia that I just realized myself. Um, anyway, so he did that, and then he lived with his Parisian girlfriend and developed this script called Q, which is hmm. does relate to uh, what we're about to say. Oh. Uh, if I may read uh, a little bit about uh, how it was described... Its prologue, which dramatizes the origins of life, became increasingly elaborate and would ultimately take the, over the rest of the story. He hired Richard Taylor, who, side notes, you might you probably recognize that name, is the creator of Weta Workshop. Oh, okay. So he he worked with Richard Taylor to try and create like impossible images that no one had ever seen about the creation of the world. In one version, the story began uh, began with a sleeping god underwater, uh, excuse me, underwater, dreaming of the origins of the universe, starting with the Big Bang and moving forward. Uh, yada 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 so we see how I'm guessing you can sort of see what the end of that would be but, yep. mm-hmm. but so that was what he, a lot of that was what he was doing a lot of it he had started a screenplay for The Thin Red Line in uh, 1990 something 1980 uh, 1989 um, so then we get The Thin Red Line mm-hmm. and what happens is there's this huge gap and again there's this legendary phase where everybody's just like remember that new Hollywood filmmaker Terrence Malick that made these crazy movies that are just now cemented as like cinematic you know Deity, mm-hmm. you know, like this, 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 the glory, the resplendence of these films cannot be overstated. And now he's back, yeah. And he's gonna make this movie. He adapted this from uh, James Jones' novel, mm-hmm. who it's sort of a pseudo spiritual sequel to um, From Here to Eternity, mm-hmm. which, um, and the original plan was I'm gonna make this kind of epic uh, war film that's gonna deal with the nature versus man and with the God and how does God fit in all this and da 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 da. And uh, he's like, and to do that, because uh, Jones's book focuses on sort of the dehumanizing of soldiers, we're going to just cast anonymous actors. <laughs> and we're not going to, they're not going to know who they are. And it's just going to switch back and forth between these people that we don't know. And it's mm-hmm. like, as anybody with even a tertiary knowledge of Thin Red Line knows, that did not happen. Yep. Terrence Malick enters the scene. It hits the grapevine that Terrence Malick is going to make a big war movie. Yep. Brad Pitt shows up. Johnny Depp shows up. Uh, famously, there's an anecdote where he signs a napkin and says, "Like, tell me when and where, and I will be on this movie set." Yep. Neither Brad Pitt nor Johnny Depp ends up the scene. <laughs> no, excuse me, ends up in the film. But ultimately, it does have a few people you may know, namely <clears throat> John Cusack, George Clooney, Adrian Brody, Jim Caviezel, Woody Harrelson, Thomas Jane, Elias Codius, Jared Leto, Tim Blake Nelson, Nick Nolte, Sean Penn, John C. Reilly, Nick Stahl, John Travolta. At one point. 
you're watching the movie and freaking Bill Pullman is just in the background of one shot saying nothing and then is never seen again. <laughs> it is notoriously obscene amount of stars that come and go. For, they're in a scene. They're gone. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um well, and because well, this was this was the movie from what I understand of hearing about it was like a lot of actors signed up for this, they read the script, and then they saw the movie and was like, this was not the movie we shot. So most famously, the <laughs> most tragic and I find hilarious in a sort of mean-spirited way, so I shouldn't, uh, way is that, uh, again, back to my sort of argument, the documentary style, he had a script which probably was probably pretty crazy, but still probably actually a story, then he filmed a completely different thing, and then the editors made a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. So the original book focused on a soldier named Fife. Uh, so an actor was cast as Fife and was like, I'm the lead of the movie. That that actor's name was Adrian Brody, a young Adrian Brody who had basically, I don't think had ever been a star. He'd been in like Soderbergh's King of the Hill before that, but as I think a uh, more minor character, I kind of, I don't remember the movie well enough. Uh, he'd been in something else, you know, it just, it just had not, was not well known. So yeah. here's this young Adrian Brody, 25 years old, his big break, he's going to play Fife, the main character of this movie. <laughs> and apparently he goes to the premiere with like his friends and family and they start watching the movie and he like flips out and like leaves the theater halfway through the movie, almost on the verge of tears, super embarrassed. I actually do, really, I, I, I find it funny, but I also feel really bad for him. That would be so devastating. So, I mean, you know how, how many stories there are about like, New actors that get a scene in a Judd Apatow movie, and they're cut from that scene. Yeah, I think that's an anecdote actually from a uh, movie, actually. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, like imagine thinking you're the star of this one of the most important, you know, legendary filmmakers' movies, and you tell everybody about it, and then you're you've got like three. Actually, I, uh, I don't know how many lines he's got, but it's mostly he's a silent character that kind of looks nervous the entire time, <laughs> which is a good description of most characters in this movie. <laughs> so uh, let me, for those that have been hearing about this and have never seen Tenshi Malik and are freaked out like, oh my word, this is this is my medicine. I'm going to have to take my medicine if I want to keep up with Jim and everybody wants to keep up with Jim. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you, my defense of the Thin Red Line is it is an awesome, entertaining movie. Now, obviously, I think it's maybe my favorite movie of all time, so maybe I'm prejudiced, but I legitimately think if you go in like, oh, it's going to be Terrence Malick, whatever, good, because when you actually watch it, there's actually a narrative. And there's the bonus candy of every new scene. Suddenly John Cusack shows up. Suddenly George Clooney shows up. Suddenly Sean Penn shows up. Mm-hmm. It's just a constant barrage of random... And I actually think the movie's point is made even more clear. Uh, instead of being a bunch of anonymous people that die randomly, it's like suddenly so-and-so shows up that you know, yeah. and they die within three seconds. <laughs> and I think it's even more moving to be like, wow, that so-and-so flew in and then is dead now, you know, like after 12 seconds of screen time. Um, so there's that aspect of it. There's actually amazing, I legitimately wonderfully shot battle sequences on set. He was like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not this kind of director. Let's bring in Rennie Harlan and film this stuff. But the action scenes are super cool and super suspenseful and super thrilling and super moving. All the things you want from like a, a war film. Maybe that sounds callous about because you know it's obviously based on actual war, which is not cool. Mm. But like for a thrilling war film perspective, it's got all this, um, right? So I actually think like there's a lot of Terrence Malick movies that I would recommend in general, like New World, and that is take your medicine, <laughs> sort of suffer through it, but see the value in it. Uh-huh. You know, imagine it's the three hour museum visit. Yep. Uh, then Red Line, I actually think is legitimately like most people that are willing to have art in their film would watch it and be like, that was a cool movie, like. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, it's funny, too, because 
came out in the same year as another war film you may have heard of. I was going to say that. Saving Private Ryan. So, of course, uh, it comes out of Saving Private Ryan, and it's, it could not be a greater divide. Right? <laughs> so, Saving Private Ryan famously uh, pioneers the sort of bleach bypass look, which would come to dominate the early 2000s. Like, mm. everything, whether it's done in the literal chemical way or not, had the bleach bypass look to the point that I think my brother observed very acutely that we will probably say like oh look how that looks like one of those old movies because it's got that bleach bypass look yeah. it was only popular in like the early aughts so whatever <laughs> um but yeah so he did that and it's a very straight nar- narrative movie it's a very you'll hear the uh tone of my voice and you'll know my feeling about spielberg it's got a very spielbergian i love that movie here those them fighting words very spielbergian sort of like hooray America and nobility and let's warm our hearts with heroism um, and we're going to have little moments of people who aren't heroes but look at those losers that weren't heroes uh, most of us are these wonderful American soldiers that are heroes doing heroic I, things I mean, it's, and, it's his way of being of, of paying homage to Americana and the greatest generation without being like without firmly stepping into like I'm conservative America damn it kind of territory I, don't even, I wouldn't even argue that he's necessary. I doubt that he is a conservative America I just I, I, I find his sort of uh this is very subjective. Mm. I just find, I, of that generation, I find Spielberg's especially output since the 90s and early aughts just really disappointing. And I'm not interested. I'm just not interested in his his interests, which are very patriotic in a way, very, I don't know, like your dad's interests. It's like, let me read books about the Cold War and I'm going to make a Cold War movie that's like, look how great America is. I'm going right, to make a movie about a horse in war. Okay, listen. I, the, the last Spielberg movie I saw in the theaters was Bridge of Spies. Actually, yes. Penned by the Coen Brothers, and yet still not no. a single bit of cynicism slips through. <laughs> um, I don't know, but I, I but I think I think the well. Let's even step back. The last three, Bridge of Spies. Um, I think I saw Lincoln in the theaters, and then oh, Munich. Don't get me started on Lincoln. Munich is the one I actually respect him for, because at least that was I, I, ballsy. I love ballsy. that. Whether I, you like it or not, it's I ballsy. love that movie. Um, it's got teeth. But no, but I, I think, and, and but I should say, like, Saving Private Ryan, like, yeah, I watched that with my dad. Like, yeah. we had the two VHS right. set, like, we watched yep, it, and yep. it was one of those things that, like, we could both kind of connect on, but I think that's... All right, now now, we're, now we've gone into to... no, but but I, I should apologize because I, I do feel like I make the classic sort of binary error of being like these are put in, in competition with each other. Saving Private Ryan classically, classically one, Thin Red Line is classically like the other one, and I'm like Thin Red Line is the greatest thing ever, and Saving Private Ryan is fine. And I my temptation then is to be like Saving Private Ryan sucks, even though it doesn't. It's pretty great. It's probably one of Spielberg's best I mean, movies. I mean, off mic, we can have a conversation about the the cinematic language and the grammar of that final battle scene is yeah. unmatched. I should also admit, man, I'm really talking at my backside with this, but uh, I haven't seen Tim Brian Ryan in quite a while. I really should rewatch it. Right. Um, any, anyway, but, but, yeah. but you can't find a more like a disparate comparison because Saving Private Ryan is like bleach bypass which is, they don't know what that means it's that look of yeah, yeah, yeah. it's almost black and white where it's, it's so desaturated the colors are yeah. almost non-existent meanwhile Thin Red Line is the richest lushest I mean we talked about like Douglas Sirk and Written in the Wind it's like Douglas Sirk was behind the camera mm. it's gorgeous I'm so you haven't seen Thin Red Line right? No. I'm so excited for you to watch this it's so it's, it's actually entertaining it's actually captivating it's actually got great action scenes and it's actually moving it's wonderful wonderful moving so well, and, and whether we like it or not I mean like history or society kind of tied these two together especially because I can right. like I can remember even as a young kid like seeing commercials for the Thin, yep. for the thin Red Line yep. like, and, and I have to imagine it's like hey we have this one world movie coming out like we're gonna market this other World War II movie right. coming out and then people ha- I have to imagine showed up to the theater and like 
what is this? Yeah, it also felt like the uh, is either like the arty version where it's like, oh, this is an arty thing, mm. or it felt like the Transmorphers, what is that, Asylum? Oh, yeah, the Asylum. And it was like the Transmorphers version. We're going to try and sneak in this other war movie and hopefully the people buy that, you know, riding the riding the wave. I, I have to imagine there was that woman a few years ago that went to go see Drive and then sued the market, the uh, the studio yeah, for no false money. Because it was yeah. like, it, it, she was expecting Fast and Furious. How many of those people stepping out of the thin red line wanted to do Yeah, let me that, actually revise my earlier thing about wanting to see Terrence Malick remake uh, Halloween or whatever. I want to actually see him make an asylum movie of maybe like Transmorphers or whatever, some sort of horrible rip-off version of something else. I'd like to see that now. I don't, I don't know if they could afford Terrence Malick. No. Even even shooting on digital, you still have to pay for the shooting time. Um, but yeah, in... in um, <laughs> Uh, there was something else I was going to... Oh, I mean, you talked about the... Um, I'm thrilled to see because it was also the DP was John Toll who shot <laughs> more Braveheart. conventional war movies. Yeah, Braveheart. Braveheart, Legend of the Fall, Vanilla Sky, Cloud Atlas, things that are known for being visually beautiful if nothing um, else. The, yeah, The Last Samurai. Uh, That's right, Last Samurai. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, by the way, I should just clarify. I know that not because I know that. I know that because I went on IMDb and clickety-clacked typed oh, all yeah, those all those titles down so I could sound smart. Nope, that's, I, that, I did the same thing. Uh, I, I mean, I recognize the name John Toll, and then when I clicked on the link, yeah, I, I did not even recognize the name. Toll. So. Um, okay, so uh, I guess we're, we've been talking for a while, so I should probably not spend too much more time on the Thin Red Line. Right. Um, but if, And then, of course, that means we'd have to get into your final recommendation, which once again is... Tree of Life. The Tree of Life. Tree of Life. Um, I'm going to tell you first and foremost my favorite memory of seeing Tree of Life because I saw it in the theaters. Everybody's memory starts with I fell asleep. Is that where this is going? No, it's okay. actually not anything to do with the. Well, it is the movie, but it's more. There's a specific audience member reaction that oh, I enjoyed. Oh boy! When I went to go see it, it was me and a friend of mine, and then sitting directly in front of us were was an elderly couple, uh, man and a woman, and the man. His response would like it was a, a pendulum swing back and forth between he's like kind of conducting with the score like you know is physically this, is, yeah it was this beautiful kind of and then oh, at, wow. a, a, other times throwing his hands up in frustration as though saying what oh, the I hell am it. I watching I love it. he was slipping in and out between like this is beautiful to what the hell am I watching right, here right. which I fully understood when I saw it in theaters it's funny I actually have a, a, a weird memory of that as well so I went with my middle brother Chris to uh, see Tree of Life is only showing in Notre Dame a cinema in Notre Dame like this mm. art house so we go in and it's packed with like you know, like middle-aged New York, or not New York, excuse me, uh, Notre Dame intellectual professor types. And I walk in and my brother is like a big, is kind of a jock. And he was like, I believe it was Notre Dame game day. So he's coming in with his, his Notre Dame uniform. Okay. And I could just see as we were walking down the steps, people looking at him like, he is in the wrong theater. <laughs> so like we go sit down and then like, it's a very, a moving expansion, but uh, my brother has like very good taste and particularly loves like mood films so it was like this uh, there's a kind of touching memory of like uh, having this shared experience with my brother of this like thing about brothers and family and growing up and thinking it's so funny that all the sort of judgmental looks he was getting because he looked like this is not the audience for him like <laughs> yeah. it was like rooting for Notre Dame later on yeah um it, funny. and this is also I mean tied into the thin red line like obviously Sean Penn comes back for this one and I yep. believe this is also another anecdote where Sean Penn is like that's not the movie that I shot <laughs> well, that's interesting. I actually don't know about that, but he is obvious. Uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously. He is only sort of bookending, and only in the most nominal of ways, bookending the, <laughs> yeah. the film. Now, I, I do think it's really important, and having a sense of knowing where the movie's going, and I guess this leads to something else, but knowing where the movie's going makes it a lot more tolerable, too. Mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't use that word, but, but makes it a lot more enjoyable when you have a sense of the general pace and general structure of it. Rewatching, particularly that Sean Penn stuff, it's so much more flush with meaning. Mm hmm. Uh, so I was really dreading uh, a little inside baseball on uh, how Jim and I came across this. We 
agreed that I would do Terrence Malick and da, da, da. And I was out of town. I just got back in town a couple days ago. Yeah. So I had two days to rewatch uh, all these Terrence Malick movies and sort of make notes and da, da, da. And I was so nervous. I texted all my friends like, do you know what's a bad idea? Uh, binge watching Terrence Malick movies back to back to back because they all again one of the big criticisms they all feel very samey and as much as I love Terrence Malick that's not entirely incorrect mm-hmm. I watched them and I was blown away with how much they actually did feel different and entertaining oh. now, granted since I'm so familiar with them I see them on a pretty granular level so I can, those distinctions are much more obvious to me yep. um, but anyway I, I, I was re-watching Terrence Malick is actually a lot more rewarding than you think I think a lot of people like that saw Trip Life once if you kind of liked it mm-hmm. I would encourage you to go back and watch it again because I think you'll approach it knowing the general structure, knowing that you're going to be watching 18 minutes of the universe uh, being created. It, you're actually a lot more game. Also, that sequence is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will talk about, I feel like average, you know, you go on Reddit and people are like, you ever see Baraka or Koyaanisqatsi? It's awesome. And they love that. It's yep. like a, that's a two hour, nothing but silence and watching nature. You're telling me you can't sit through 20 minutes of these beautiful shots of the universe exploding into existence? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Well, maybe they're just, they don't have a taste for CGI dinosaurs. So, uh, okay, so let me actually give you one more anecdote. So, you know, uh, Terrence Malick hadn't done anything since, then, then, uh, oh, excuse me, since uh, The New World. Yep. So everybody like me, now that I'm on board, you know, I was like, what's he going to do next? And then you're like, it's going to be Brad Pitt. And you're like, what's Brad Pitt? And you're like, and it's going to be like, have dinosaurs. And it's going to be about brothers betraying each other or something. So you're like... Everybody's like, what is this? It's like Cain and Abel with dinosaurs. This feels like the dumbest <laughs> like creationist story I've ever, you know, like young earth creationism, like there's cavemen writing dinosaurs like the Flintstones. Like, what is this nonsense? And then, of course, you actually see it. And for me, I was just like blown away. I, I loved it. Um, even the dinosaurs, which, you know, people might criticize, but, you mm. know, it's haters are going to hate. No, to each his own. Um. That uh, what was I going to say about this? Um, so, Tree of Life. I, I mean, the the one thing I, I remember seeing about this movie was, and and once again, I haven't seen it since it came out in theater, right. so it's been a long time. Uh, I remember kind of thinking like, this movie is trying to do a lot, mm-hmm. and I but I don't remember if my conclusion was it succeeded or not. Yeah, and I, I also think my memory, and I, this you know, this is the third or fourth time I've seen Tree of Life. Uh, is a hazy it actually feels like what the movie is doing which is it just feels like hazy collection of memories that are sort of unrelated hmm. again when you go back and rewatch it and when I did this time I was so shocked at how structured it actually does kind of feel like I just remember just being nothing but nonsense you know nothing but just random little kids playing and then a mom hugging and then a dad being kind of mean yep. and then kids playing and then throwing some you know and then dinosaurs and then kids playing uh, if you actually watch it you know you could absolutely define lay out the structure very easily it's like then this thing happens at the pool and then there's a thing about the family um, so I think you'll be surprised at actually how structured it actually feels and how much it actually interesting again I think upon rewatching, especially when you know his sort of rhythm it'll actually feel a little more coherent mm-hmm. now again if you're not totally on the wavelength and don't want to like it or feel like it's kind of pretentious or whatever I can see how even upon multiple viewings it's just kind of boring and feels as you described it in a text to me cinematic ambient. <laughs> I uh, I can see that and I can't I can't uh, certainly obviously subjective so I can't criticize my subjective opinion mm-hmm. and especially in this arena I totally see if you're just not into it you're I, not gonna, I, you might not be into it. I know? should clarify and say I, d- I described your binge watching of Malik as, uh, as cinematic okay. ambient, not specifically okay. the Tree. I will of say Life. if I had to have watched Tree of Life and New World and To the Wonder back to back to back to back. Uh-huh. It would be a rough. It would be a rough go. But especially, I love the new world. But man, even for someone that loves it, it is it is taking your medicine. It is really 
really taking your medicine, especially because now they have like three different cuts of it. And like the one that's kind of most standard is the director's cut, which is like 20 minutes longer than the original cut. Nope. And then they have like the rough cut or something, which is like three and a half hours, which I've seen that. And it's just like, this doesn't feel any different to me. Nope. And then like, you know, they have like a special feature where there's, there's the editors talking about, look at this exact same sequence and the three different cuts. They're so dramatically different. And you're like, I mean, I can see they're different, <laughs> but in aggregate, it all feels the same to me. Uh, and of course, Tree of Life now also has like a giant mega cut, which I haven't yet watched. I'm kind of excited to watch it, but it's like well, three or three and a half hours long. Well, and that was one, uh, the other takeaway that I, I remember when I saw it was like, if I ever purchase this movie, it's going to be Blu-ray or nothing. Like, I'm not yeah. going to buy this on DVD. Um, no, why watch it any other way? Yeah, and especially, I mean, Emmanuel Lubezki, like... Oh, yeah. This guy is wonderful. And do you want to... This is a fun little game, Andrew. Do you <laughs> want to take a guess, if, or maybe even you remember, um, Tree of Life was nominated for a few Oscars, including cinematography. Right. Do you remember the film that it lost to? I'm about to be very sad, aren't I? Um, I mean, even yeah. if you hate Tree of Life, and, and you it's have funny, to say it. And it's funny because it's it's to a movie that at the time I loved and have not rewatched because I'm fairly sure if I rewatched it, I'm like, I don't... Is it Slumdog Millionaire? No, uh, Slumdog was 2008 that okay. it came out. Um, like that feels like a movie that I'm scared to revisit because I'm sure it will not be very good. Well, I'll tell you which ones it wasn't. The okay. ones that it that also didn't lo- that also didn't win. Um, Jeff Cronenworth for the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, I, I like that. I, yeah. I mean, anything Fincher. Um, your friend Janusz Kaminski for War Horse. Uh, <laughs> is he just nominated every year? By the way, it's just like ah, no, it didn't if, if he, no, if he, he does something, it's pretty much. Come on, I mean, um, it's fine. It's in service of. Something I don't care for. All right, I, I haven't seen more. Um, and then the other non-winner was uh, Guillaume Shipman for The Artist, which was one of those movies that, yes, won Best Picture and nobody remembers. Right. I mean, that's the one that everybody likes to point to as sort of Hollywood being like, aren't we awesome? Yep. It's like the cinematic equivalent of George Clooney's acceptance speech where he's like, we've always been a little bit ahead of the curve. I don't know if you ever remember that. but I don't remember that. Okay, but yeah. the one that won, Robert Richardson for Hugo. Interesting. Yep. Huh. And once again, a movie that I saw and loved made my top ten. I bought it on Blu-ray. Have not watched it since because I'm pretty sure once I rewatch it, I will not care for it. Uh, it does have beautiful cinematography. I mean, I just don't think it's accomplishing. It, it was also the things that they were accomplishing when you when you see the sort of guerrilla filmmaking tactics. I don't know. I, there's a lot of ways to assess. Like, it what's was better. it was also a big 3D release as well. That's right. And one of those like 3D right. releases that actually kind of worked. Um, yeah. And let me make one note about Scorsese. Uh, I, I've always said like the one thing great about being a director versus an actor. I mean, obviously a million things, but as you age and you're an actor, you start running out. The noose starts tightening, and you're kind of running out of options. As a director, you can just go on forever, right? The difference is, and this is the sad thing: how many directors can you name, especially from New Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, that as they've aged have continued consistently? And I can name one. You look at Brian De Palma, and I know a lot of people don't like his any part of his career, I don't but really he has really fallen apart in recent years, right? Yeah. You look at Mar- uh, excuse me, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who you want to say, like, look, it's actually awesome. He's gone back to filmmaking, and he's doing it his way. He's self-producing. Yeah. And then, you know, who saw Tetro? Who saw Youth time Without with, Youth? Youth Without Youth. Yeah. I was say Time Without Time. Youth Without Youth. And apparently those that did were like, uh, sorry. You look at, you know, any of these people, and they've just not... Uh, the one person I can name, and some people name Spielberg, I would not. The one person I can name is Scorsese. Yeah. Is the person that... He comes out of the movie, and it's awesome. And he's, whatever, like, turning 80. And that is also, frankly, uh, one of the arguments I have... Theories I have about why Malik is fading to the Wonder. He's 69 years old. Knight of Cups, he's 72 years old. Song to Song, he's 74 years old. One of the arguments could just be most directors, unless you're Martin Scorsese and have 
drank vampire blood that only gives you spryness, fast speaking, and the ability to make wonderful uh, movies. Uh, everyone else just their their skills just kind of dwindle a little bit, and I th- and that could be one of the arguments why Malik's sort of late period, as I call it, isn't quite as good. Yeah, because I'm even trying to think of like directors who have been uh, who have been still consistently working as they've gotten older, and like a Mike lot- Lee. I'm just realizing Mike Lee might be a person that I would consider. I haven't seen his most recent stuff, but I hear it's good, and I'm sure if I watched it, I'd like it a decent amount. Um, side note on that, it's weird that Mike Lee ever has been nominated or won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay when his films are entirely improvised, right. but that's neither right. here nor there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's, like no, it's like note cards. Like, this happens, and then maybe this um, happens, and maybe this happens. But yeah, because I mean, yeah. like, Kubrick worked until, but not even, because like, there was a big gap between. Young. Yeah, he died young. He died young. Uh, I mean. I love Eyes Wide Shut. I was blown away with how much I loved it the first of all. But, you know, he was still only maybe early 60s. I, I, and, and even though he wasn't, and he wasn't prolific, I mean, Terry Gilliam has has still been making stuff, but his stuff has not uh, been Some people defend great. it, but for the most part, it's not considered great. Um, I mean, the problem is a lot of those filmmakers uh, have to rely on CG, and just Terry Gilliam and CG do not work no. Well, um, it well, looks like a video game. His movies are like video games. I'm, I'm sorry, Terry Gilliam, you're a very great filmmaker, but you know, like, who saw like Imaginary of Doctor Parnassus? I did, and, and did it look like a video game? Uh, the, it didn't work. Yeah. Um, but what actually surprisingly did was the three different actors, right, right. subbing in yeah, and out. The, for... the one thing that should be the most difficult was the one thing he was. Actually yeah, it was the one thing, that did, and yeah. that was unfortunate. Um, yeah. the, but the movie itself was not very good. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there. And actually, I'd be curious if any listeners want to chime in as to like a, a, a filmmaker who continued putting out great work yeah. into their. And I'm sure, and I'm. This is probably such an American thing. I'm sure there's probably European. I mean. Someone would probably say Godard because he keeps putting out stuff. Yeah. I don't care for no, him. No, no one's going to say Godard. No one's going to say Godard. No one's going to say Godard. One person might. Scott and I, he's in the Battleship Pretension Fleet. He's a wonderful guy. Loves Godard's late stuff. I, yeah. I mean, I can talk, hey, no, I can talk but, a lot about Godard. But that's yeah, that's, 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 that's not a hearing. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. This is something I actually think about a lot. And this is a weird, like, probably one of the things I return to sort of thought, personal thought experiments. Like, I return to the most frequently mm-hmm. is which film, like, directors, sort of our tour directors, have aged really late in life, still make movies, and they're actually good. And it's like, Scorsese's the one I can name. Now I just thought of, after years of thinking about this, Mike Lee, I think, probably could be on that list. Mm-hmm. I was but, about to yeah. say, like, even Juan Carwai, like the Grandmaster in 2013, but he's was 56. Good? Like he's, Oh, he's 56? He's, he's not, or no, he was born in 56, but like, oh. so he's not even 70 years old yet. He's not 70 years old, so he's still, 60s is still prime filmmaking age, as far as, far as I'm concerned. Anyway, um, but yeah, I, I, but you're right. He, I think he had a period of excellence, and you, you know, before that, after that, yeah. But anyway, but uh, yeah. So that's. Um, I think we should probably have an eye here towards wrapping up. It's been this is. I'm gonna say unquestionably, this is the longest po- episode ever in the history of ID Movies Badly. I'm so sorry. If you have survived until the end of this, then you're probably like yes or. Everyone else probably tuned M- out. Much like the taking your medicine just, with uh, Terrence Malick, you had to take your medicine with this and just hear monologuing for three hours. There's something appropriate about the Terrence Malick episode <laughs> being the longest one. but And of course, uh, uh, as a recap, we have Badlands. We have the thin red line. I almost said the thin blue line. Not which mistaken. Is also a great movie, but a right. different director. And an older director that still does decent work. Yeah. Decent work. Not as good, but decent. Yeah. I, I didn't love... Uh, what was that? The photograph one I... Yeah. Not a fan of yeah, that's fine. Anyway, yeah. um, and uh, and then the Tree of Life. Oh my God, this is it's not even that late. I'm just like my brain is so. No, this is how you feel after watching Tree this, of Life. Uh, this is a taste of it. But anyway, so um, Andrew, 
if people have been listening to the end because they've enjoyed what we've been talking about and they want to get in touch with you. <laughs> it's like my, my family, maybe. Yeah, my or, or if someone just really wants to lay into you. Right. Which is probably the more likely thing that's going to happen. Fair enough. How can yes. people... How can people interact with you see anything about you yeah, about yours um, come on so now that i don't teach anymore i do visual effects i do motion graphics animation Ooh. editing i have a website andrewdesalm.com yep. you can uh send me a message to that you can follow my occasional animations uh on instagram andrew.deselm oh. is my instagram handle and that's about it I, I did not know you did that on the instagram check it out okay it's a delight I, and andrew posts once every six months on facebook i see <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's my malik the malik coming out of me i'm yeah. just like ah i'm gonna keep it myself um and of course you can always reach me at uh you do movies badly at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at nolan fixes teeth there's not really i mainly just retweet liberal political stuff i'll be honest with you that's mostly what i do these days <laughs> so it's like either pretentious weird stuff with this podcast yeah. or political tweets yeah but if you want to see me retweeting stuff from sean king and alexandria ocasio cortez like go ahead and follow me on on, <laughs> on that um i do movies badly.podbean.com to catch up on back episodes as well as itunes and battleship retention um you know the drill obviously but um yeah uh so andrew i want to thank you for coming on to this podcast talking Thank you so about much. Terrence Malick. I'm sorry that I had to edit our conversation a bit because Please we could have gone. edit it more. Yeah, <laughs> I think do them a favor. <laughs> I've seen someone will, will see the running the running time of this and be like, no editing? What are you talking yeah. about? So, um, But yeah, Andrew, thank you very much for joining me. And listeners, please be sure to tune in next week where I'll be uh, reviewing Badlands and we'll hopefully I'll be just a little bit less ignorant but mostly more tired. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.